Hello and welcome to Alchemy. We have another action-packed episode in store and it's great to have your company for the duration. We're free and on demand from iTunes and alchemyradio.net and you can find us and join the community on Facebook and Twitter. So don't be shy, come along and say hello. We exist thanks to your kind donations. So to everybody who has donated in the past while, thank you very much. You're the reason we're here at all. So then, on to the show. Alchemy, 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 alchemy. My guest this episode is writer, researcher and filmmaker John Hankey. John explores topics such as deep state and current affairs and his specialist subject, so to speak, is the death of JFK. Indeed, the death of both JFKs. John is working hard on a 54-year retrospective on the murder of JFK Sr. and how, 54 years down the line, the case gets more and more fascinating with more shocking revelations coming to light all the time. He's produced numerous films and videos on the subject, and that's exactly what we're about to talk about now. John, you're very welcome to Alchemy. How are you? Hey, I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you here, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I've been researching your work and the research that you've been doing for a long time, and I heard you not so long ago on Richie Allen's show as well and was very impressed. So uh, I thought I have to get in touch and get John on the show. So thank you very much for joining me. There is a question, and I'm putting you on the spot here, that I ask every first-time guest on the show, and that is, how did you get from where you were, John, to where you are now? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, let me talk about myself a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm 65, or I will be in a couple of weeks. And back when Kennedy was shot, I was in, I think, the sixth grade. And, you know, I, I remember the the principal coming. I went was in Catholic school. <laughs> and the, I remember the principal coming to the door and telling the teacher, uh, also a nun, that the president had been shot and coming back and half an hour later with tears in her eyes telling her that he was dead. And, you know, of course, the Catholics were all, I mean, that's true in Ireland mm -hmm. as well, that uh, the Catholics were all very, very, uh, Kennedy was near and dear to their hearts. Um, <clears throat> and my teacher was um, very political. Uh, she the most political nun I ever knew and, and more political than most of the, the Catholic uh, administrators, uh, officials that, that I've ever known in my life. And she was very, very disturbed uh, by the assassination, but I didn't think anything of it until I was 20. And a roommate of mine had an illegal copy of the Zapruder film, which is the film taken from probably 50 feet away of Kennedy driving down the street and getting his brains blown out. Anyway, um, that got, he showed me that. And the next day I went to the library, and I'll tell that story because it's interesting. He said, oh, you have to get rushed to judgment by Mark Lane. And I said, okay, I will. And, and the next day I went down to the main public library in Los Angeles, which is formidable. And I walked over to the card catalog. And I hadn't written down the name because I was sure that I, you know, I'm, 
I got straight A's in school. When I was in college, I had a 3.97. I got one A minus. So I'm, I'm good at this sort of stuff. And I, I was sure that I would remember the name and, of, and the title of the book when I saw it. So I didn't bother to write it down. And I went to the card catalog and I looked under John Kennedy assassination of and I didn't see it. And I looked under assassinations, Kennedy, and I didn't see it. And I walked over to the librarian. There's probably 50 of them in that library, but this was in the social studies department. And he, I said, I'm looking for a book on the Kennedy assassination. And he said, Mark Lane rushed to judgment. And I said, yeah, that's the one. It's not in the card catalog. He said, sure it is. Look under Mark Lane or look under rush to judgment. And I said, yeah, but if you look under Kennedy assassinations, it's not there. The, the people who put together the card catalog were complicit in covering up the story of the Kennedy assassination. And so that's how I got from here to there. But I want to end with the sentence that you would think that 54 years later, this subject would be getting beat to death and dusty. And it is so not the case. It's just <laughs> absolutely astonishing to me. And if you, if you, uh, let me give you one prime example, and if you, unless you're interested in pushing it somewhere else, but yet very, very briefly, mm-hmm. the Zapruder film, which everyone in the audience should be familiar with, if you're not, make yourself familiar with it, was shot by this guy, Abraham Zapruder, um, standing in a perfect location, it's worth mentioning, and it shows the limousine moving at a steady pace down the street. And then Kennedy gets shot very, very violently in the right front of his head and gets thrown violently backwards. When I was 20, the version that I saw, there was a giant blood stream out of his head. And somehow the Secret Service man jumps on the back of the limousine. But it's a very tight shot at this point, and you can't see anything except the... um, I guess maybe the driver might be cut out of the scene at this point. It's just Kennedy and his wife and the Secret Service man. And, and then they drive off down the street. <clears throat> well, um, about a year ago, a guy named Larry Rivera dug up. He was just digging around and he found someone who had interviewed all of the motorcycle cops. Right. There were two motorcycle police on each side of the limousine. And all of them said that the limousine came to a stop, to a near stop, to slow to one mile an hour for an extended period of time, like 20 seconds. It was so slow that that they had to start making circles on their motorcycles in order to maintain their balance. I think one of them actually stopped his motorcycle. They discussed how the Secret Service dismounted from the limousine that they were riding in immediately behind the president and came forward and that's not in the Zapruder film. No, we don't see that at all. No, you don't see that at all. And what's the, going on here? The, there's someone. Um, I should Joseph McBride, who is a really important personage researcher. Um, he dug up the memo written by J. Edgar Hoover that names Mr. George Bush of the Central Intelligence Agency in a memo. The title of the memo is "Assassination of President Kennedy," and you, I'm telling you, what you. I can squeeze much more information out of that memo today than I could five years ago. Uh, Because, right, every time you add a bit of information, 
it reflects on everything that you have studied up until that point. Anyhow, this, the, he wrote a book. This, McBride wrote a book. He interviewed uh, Yarborough, the senator from Texas. And he says that the limousine came to a stop and the Secret Service dismounted. So you have four motorcycle cops and the senator from Texas saying that the limousine came to a stop and the Secret Service dismounted. Now, I've been making videos for some time. And if you see one of my early earliest versions, JFK 2, the Kennedy assassination, um, I did some, I worked very, very hard. You know, it, you're, you're trying to tell a story that has been suppressed. Well, what do you do for visuals, right? There are no visuals available. You had to dig, you know, to, to the nth degree to find a sentence that when you add it to another sentence from another book and add that to another sentence from another book and you collect those together, suddenly they just have this monstrous impact. Um, in terms of their significance. So, but it's very hard to come up with illustrations of that. So in one scene, for example, um, I had to create the head of the CIA, Colby, testifying in front of the Senate committee investigating the assassination. And while he was doing that and revealing a lot of interesting stuff, he was fired. Nelson Rockefeller was made vice president and Colby was immediately fired, and the CIA, which had been cooperating with the committee up until that point, began stonewalling them and didn't supply anything else. And so I show Nelson Rockefeller come walking in and swinging a samurai sword and cutting Colby's head off, and Colby is speaking the whole time, right? His, his mouth is moving in conjunction with the words that he's saying and his head flies around in the air and he keeps talking and it bounces a couple of times and he says oh maybe I should quit talking now the point is that I know a little something about video and creating video effects and I can tell you that and I need to do it but I need to find time to do it but I, you'll, as you'll see in this discussion I'm very very busy with a lot of other really critically important stuff mm -hmm. It would be, I think if I had a team, I could easily, if I had a small team, I could easily in an afternoon take the Zapruder film and reverse a few frames, cut out a few segments and reverse the order of the segments of Kennedy's body. And you move, you change the motion of the body from back, from front to back, you reverse the frames and it's now motion from back to front. Hmm. Right. It's, it seems to me a rather routine thing to do. Yep. The point is that if you have altered the film, why did you alter the film and eliminate the limousine stop? Which I'm telling you that that is mind boggling. That is beyond state of the art. The fact that they eliminated the stop of the limousine, they eliminated the Secret Service descending and coming forward. That's state of the art. I, I don't see how they could possibly have done it if they didn't have raw footage in their hand at the time that they had shot the day before of the limousine going down the street. Right. And then you could build from that. But how they would have done it otherwise it is really, really a remarkable feat. And do, so we, they, do we have any kind of eyewitness testimony that maybe the day before, a couple of days beforehand, there was some kind of rehearsal that may have been noticed or anything? Oh, no. And... And I, I wouldn't, that's not the point in any case, right? I mean, that's a minor, 
extrapolation of a minor point from, you know, you've got Dale Yarborough, the senator, saying the limousine stopped and it's not in the film. You have the four police saying the limousine stopped and it's not in the film. And it yeah. really doesn't matter yeah. how they did it. But the question that I can't get anybody in the research community, and I have a lot of very good friends and people who I respect enormously and who show no interest in addressing the question of why did they remove the limousine stop, which is just such a formidable accomplishment, and they left in the shot from the front, which exposes the entire official version as a lie. Why did they remove the one and keep in the other? Well, that is a question to ponder indeed, and no doubt it is a question you have pondered many, many times. So what have you come up with in that regard? Because to me, it seems baffling. Isn't it? Um, well, let me, let me add something, which is that Zapruder then ran. He handed, he handed the video, his, I'm sorry, his, it's an eight millimeter film, over to the Secret Service. Hmm. Well, the Secret Service are the guys who stopped the limousine in front of the grassy knoll for 20 seconds waiting for the fatal shot. Right now, and, and, and here's a piece of drama to, to add. The Secret Service has, has drawn, has driven Kennedy through Dealey Plaza, to breaking all sorts of rules um, at a, you know, the speed that they were going. The fact that they didn't, weren't going 60 at that point after, right, at the first shot had been fired six seconds before the last shot was fired. Right, so you'd imagine you'd be getting the hell out of there as quickly as possible, surely. Well, that's what the regulations direct them to do, and they didn't do it. Um, and, and the film gets handed over to these guys who are demonstrably the most villainous agency involved. You can't show, I don't think, CIA involvement in the assassination. I think that I can, but you can't. And <laughs> no offense, right? I mean, you get it. Yes. Yeah, sure. um, very, very few researchers have anything of any particular weight, I think, regarding demonstrating CIA complicity in the assassination. They can show motive, but they can't show involvement. Mm. Um, but so, Zapruder runs to a television station and describes Kennedy's brains spilling out the front of his head. Okay, now, well, that's significant. Zapruder did, Zapruder did not see Kennedy's brain spilling out the front of his head. Now, he probably understood, he was told that when we're done with this film, people will see Kennedy's brains spilling out the front of his head. And I believe, and Dan Rather, on Sunday afternoon, which is a considerable while later, um, late Sunday morning, saw, he says a copy of the Zapruder film, and then ran to the CBS station and told Walter Cronkite that the president's head jerked forward. I don't know whether the president's brains spilled out of the front of his head, but rather says that the president's head jerked forward, and I'm completely willing to accept his word at this point, that I'm, I'm completely open to the suggestion that he saw a version of the Zapruder film in which Kennedy's head jerked forward, but... In 1966, when they released it to the general public, that was not the version that they released. In 1972, when I saw it, there was a giant blood splatter that you saw, mm. and that's no, that is no longer. You can't, I can't find that version anywhere. It's certainly not in the official version. So the official version has been clearly altered now. 
I haven't gotten anyone to, and it may be that the reason I can't get anybody to entertain and answering this question is because nobody likes what I think is the very clear implication. Um, this guy, McBride, discusses, you, you, you ans- asked the question, how did you get here from there? And McBride discusses how the way that he got here from there is that he read a Time, I'm sorry, a Life magazine article in 1966, the same year that the Zapruder film was handed to um, Jim Garrison in, in uh, New Orleans for the trial of Clay Shaw. They published a front page article attacking the single bullet theory. Life magazine, right, the major perpetrators of the lie that the, the Zapruder film, right, then the days, the week after the assassination, they published several frames and they, they rearranged the order and they cut out anything that was really of any significance. In any case, they hid the fact that Kennedy was shot from the front. Um, and, and let me underline for people in the audience who might be a little put off from this. Um, and I, let me introduce it a little bit. It's, it's my observation. <laughs> I'm going to get a little philosophical on you here. No harm that in that. Rea- reality is just an insanely complex web, right? If you walk down a city street, there are a thousand witnesses to the fact that you walked down the city street. And each of there are a thousand different points of view and a thousand different observations and a thousand different stories of how each of those witnesses came to be where they were so that they could see you walking down that city street. So that just a simple act like that, you have an insanely complex matrix of interlocking other facts and and witnesses and well and and the facts of that brought all of those witnesses together so that when you come to examine something like this for the perpetrators to take one single int what's the word intersection there's a fancier word than that but intersection will do um right one single point in this incredibly vast and complex matrix of interlocking facts for them to eliminate one of them does not eliminate all of the rest Mm. so that while they have done you know they're all right they changed the Zapruder film on the on the day of the assassination they changed it I believe that I very much believe that they changed it to show Kennedy's head flying him flying forward and his brain spilling out the front I believe that rather I'm sorry, that Rather wasn't lying, in fact, but that he saw an altered version of the film. But they didn't change the observation of the Texas senator who was two cars behind, right? He was riding with Lyndon Johnson, two cars behind. Um, They didn't change the observation of the four motorcycle police. And... You know, it's interesting, you, you, no one was pointedly directed to discuss the stop of the limousine, but if you look hard enough, you will find, you know, vague descriptions. I think Jackie Kennedy, um, Greer, if I'm not mistaken, was the driver, and Greer tried to get an appointment to apologize to Jackie Kennedy, and Jackie Kennedy wouldn't see him. She would not accept his apology. 
And I think it's because she recognized fully and clearly that the driver was absolutely complicit. He should have been stomping on the gas. And instead, he was coming to a near stop right in front of where the the real assassin was hidden. Hmm. <laughs> um, anyway, maybe maybe I should let you get a word in edgewise at this point. No, well, I, I find it very interesting because... Isn't it true that at the time, I think it was the next day or a couple of days later maybe, that the New York Times uh, ran an article stating that the bullet from the right front blew a fist-sized hole in the back of JFK's head and has, sin- has since denied it. Is that, that is the case, isn't it? The day of the assassination, the afternoon of okay. the assassination, they ran an extra and, you know, the chief of surgery was at the press conference, right? Kennedy's press secretary, assistant press secretary, Malcolm Kildiff, um, when after Kennedy died, about 20 minutes, 30 minutes after Kennedy died and was declared dead, uh, he walked with the head of surgery out to a press conference. And it's on film. And he points to his... that. Tom Weicker was the reporter for the New York Times. And Tom Weicker says, I, you don't get to hear the question. I haven't heard the question, but he's clearly asking um, about the wound that killed Kennedy. And Kildoff points to his right temple and says, it was a simple matter, Tom, of a bullet right through the head. And all of the Dallas doctors are on video describing a, a fist-sized wound in the back of Kennedy's head, which is you know, clearly, and, and some of them will say this, and some of them let you do your own research on that fact, yeah. that that's, a, that's an exit wound. But so we don't need the Zapruder film. The Zapruder film may be an altered and unreliable document. The Zapruder film is a extremely, just astonishingly, thoroughly and expertly altered and completely unreliable document, but... You have 10,000 other intersections, interstices, anyway, it doesn't matter. An intersection is two-dimensional. I'm looking for the the three-dimensional term um, for an intersection of of lines in three dimensions rather than two. Anyhow, it doesn't matter. The point is that you don't have to rely on any single source. And, you know, for the wannabe researchers in your audience, I'm, I'm here to tell you what you need to do. And what I've done and what I've been doing lately and just having a, just having a great time. I mean, it's just like a murder mystery. But you, you read one source and you go, wow. And then you read another source and go, wow, because with the information that you got from the first source, it makes the second source that much more powerful. Mm. You then read and, – and this is what I, I do standard is – the, the second source is a footnote from the first source. And then I read the footnote. I read, get the book that was cited in the, the second source. And wow, with the information from the first two sources, the third source is so powerful. And then you have a fourth and you have a fifth. And when you get to the fifth source, you have to go back and read the first one again because you have all of this background information that informs these isolated facts that appear isolated the first time you read them and the second the right the second time you read them with all of this background suddenly they are rock solid 
conclusive evidence of just mind-boggling material. And I'll give you a for example, unless you direct me in another direction. No, go for the example, because I think anything that connects dots in such a manner is incredibly powerful. Well, so, uh, Peter Dale Scott is one of the earliest most important, I think, researchers in the Kennedy assassination. He was a Berkeley professor. He was a Canadian ambassador. He's he he couldn't be more mainstream and he couldn't be more highly qualified and he couldn't be more professional. And I'm reading an article that he wrote that I read 40 years ago on National Security Action Memorandum 263, which Kennedy signed on October 2nd, I believe. It might have been October 6th, and it doesn't matter. Uh, But a month and three weeks before he was assassinated, he signed this memorandum. And Peter Dale Scott is arguing that this memorandum and assorted other evidence shows that Kennedy was determined to get out of Vietnam. (coughs) And... Um, I was persuaded by that article 40 years ago, but 40 years later, my mind has been trained to not accept anything. And so I'm arguing with each and every sentence about whether, in fact, it it demonstrates or even implies the things that Peter Dale Scott, who, you know, I I regard as a mentor and a hero and so on. But I'm finding it much less persuasive. And in fact, for 40 years, I have regard, regarded Noam Chomsky, who's an, who's an MIT professor, um, right? And at least equally as qualified as Peter Dale Scott. And Chomsky argues that the historical record does not back the finding that Kennedy was planning to get out of Vietnam. And when I was finished reading this 40-year-old Peter Dale Scott article... I was persuaded that Chomsky was correct in saying that the record doesn't show it, right? Kennedy may have been planning to get out of Vietnam, but the record doesn't show it. So then I'm knocking around on the subject of of National Security Action Memorandum 263, and I run into an article written by the son of John Kenneth Galbraith. John Kenneth Galbraith was a very, very close friend and advisor to Kennedy, and he was, I believe at the time, the ambassador to India. And Kennedy tried to involve him in trying to make peace in Vietnam and and arrive at a peace deal with the North. And I guess I'll throw in that, that Kennedy ordered Lodge to contact Galbraith and asked Galbraith to involve himself and Lodge, Lodge's assistant wrote a memo to Galbraith and Galbraith took the memo and crossed out the the lines in which Kennedy's message was being delivered to Galbraith that he should act as an ambassador to try to seek peace with the North. Well, where the hell does Lodge get off? You know, it's it's the most flagrant disobedience of Kennedy, Mm. well, that's interesting, and 
Good gravy. You know, this Galbraith, this is written by Galbraith's son, who is a history professor at the University of Austin. And this this article is written for his fellow history professors. It is not a walk in the park. And so, you know, it's heavy, heavy sledding. And especially for a guy like me who brings all of this background knowledge and I'm questioning every single sentence in it. And he finally gets to the punchline. And don't let me let that sound like a complaint. Glory be to Galbraith that he brought this thing to my attention, which it I had missed for the previous 50 years. And I, I have to write him an email and ask him where he got it. I sent him an email and said, can you give me a copy? Because in the article, he had offered to provide a copy of the memorandum that I'm about to talk about. Okay. I don't know where he got it. I can't find it. But he sent me a copy. There it is. It's a photograph of this memo written by General Maxwell Taylor who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right? He's the highest ranking military officer in the country, and it's written, I think, on October 8th. So it's like written the day after Kennedy signed National Security Action Memorandum 263. By the way, you can't find a copy of 263 that has Kennedy's signature on it. You, you can find five highly reputable college professors writing that Kennedy signed the memo, but you can't find a copy that has his signature on it. So I'm not sure what they're basing their allegation that Kennedy signed it upon. I, I have a suspicion that he signed it, but you can't prove that from the historical record. Speaking of things that you can't prove from the historical record. Anyhow, Maxwell Taylor writes, the, we are going to be out, out of Vietnam completely, and not just the military, but all of the ancillary staff. By December 1965, we are going to begin withdrawing troops tomorrow. We are going to bring home a thousand troops, but don't make a big deal out of this because it's not a big deal. It is the first step in a long series of steps between now and December of 65, when the last 1,000, when the last 1,000 troops are brought home. Mm. Now, Galbraith points out that Maxwell Taylor wanted to invade Vietnam with thousands of U.S. troops, not with advisors, but with troops. He wanted to increase the bombing. He wanted to have a huge escalation of the war. And Kennedy, he wanted that from the first day. And Kennedy resisted him from the first day. And when Kennedy died, there were no troops, quote unquote, in Vietnam, there were 16,000 advisors, which is a lot. And you can dispute the significance of whether an individual is a troop or an advisor. And in terms of the risk that this individual is exposed to, there is no difference. But in terms politically of whether that individual is a troop or whether they are an advisor, it's a huge, right? It's mountain sized difference what is the difference then because to me that seems incredible that you can have two people essentially doing the same job i mean stick a gun in my hand and throw me in a jungle um i don't really care whether i'm called a trooper an advisor and they're doing the same thing so what is the difference in a political sense because language is important because if you are sending an advisor they're an advisor anybody can send advisors anywhere it doesn't represent any sort of a commitment if you send a troop if you send a soldier, you have invaded that country. You know, there's no two ways. You okay, have made a so military commitment 
that you, this is now your war that you are fighting. You're not standing there being ancillary, offering advice like duck um, to, the, to the person who's also being shot at. You, you, you see my, are you getting the point? Yeah, I mean, so huge, basically they're ha- hiding behind the language yeah, in terms of international diplomacy. Um, I wouldn't say so. Okay, keep, um, keep going with the point because I'm obviously not quite getting you, but I, I do want to get to the bottom of this. I think it's important. It, it's not that you're hiding behind the language. The language is extremely important, and there were huge battles fought in the White House between Kennedy and his advisors and between Johnson and his advisors, all of them pushing, 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 pushing to use this language that indicates a military commitment by the United States to victory in Vietnam, right? If you have an advisor and the battle is lost, well, you weren't really in it, so you didn't, the U.S. military did not suffer a defeat if they didn't have any troops. Okay. If they had troops and they lost, that's a military defeat for the armed forces of the United States. And perhaps as an Irishman, that doesn't have the same resonance as it would to any American. Oh, you you know, the Americans are taught to be stupid in many, many ways. And one of them is to have pride in the military that, you know, commits these horrific crimes all over the world and has since, (laughs) geez, I I don't know, you yeah. know, since they since the end of the Civil War for sure when they began, and no, and before that, you know, the the slaughter of the Native Americans, right, has has been a disgrace of the U.S. military since 1776. Anyhow, um, the point is that Maxwell Taylor was a huge advocate for making a military commitment in Vietnam, and he and Kennedy. Kennedy brought him out of retirement. So there was a special relationship between those two. And I I hesitate even to say that they were butting heads because I think that they respected each other enormously. Now, and it may be that people who respect each other sometimes murder each other. And I don't know whether Maxwell Taylor was involved in the murder of John Kennedy. Certainly he was aware that John Kennedy was murdered. And certainly he was aware of the dramatic change that took place in in U.S. policy in Vietnam as a result of Kennedy's murder, and he couldn't have possibly have been too stupid to have linked those two issues, his murder and the change in policy, in any case. Um, As Galbraith points out, Maxwell Taylor was dedicated to escalating this war. There's no way, as Galbraith points out, that he would have written of this U.S. commitment to withdrawing in December 1965 completely if it had not been under very direct orders from the President of the United States. Now, you can find all sorts of corroboration for that in that there are numerous witnesses who saw Maxwell Taylor and Robert McNamara leave Kennedy's office where they had just discussed 263 and go and talk to Bundy, McGeorge Bundy, a major player in the assassination, a member of Skull and Bones, one of the guys who sits at the, you know, if there's 
10 guys sitting at the table discussing Kennedy's murder. Bundy is there. If there's five guys, he might be there. The five might be a little small to include him, but he's right in, he's certainly in the top 20. Right. And so he walks, Maxwell Taylor and McNamara come walking out of their meeting with Kennedy where they have been, had it beaten into their heads that this is what's going to happen. They walk in and meet with probably Rusk, Dean Rusk, the Secretary of State, and Bundy, and some other national security people. And these guys just throw a shite fit. They go crazy. And, oh, no, 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 no. And they make Maxwell Taylor and um, McNamara agree to remove the language that they're going to be completely out by 65. And those two guys walk back in and talk to Kennedy and come walking right back out and say the language is not being removed. (laughs) Shut up. Oh, and Kennedy comes walking out with them. And in front of Kennedy, they say the language is not being removed. And the people assembled that I previously named then in much more polite terms object to Kennedy about that language. And without a word, Kennedy turns on his heel and walks out of the room, which is to say, there's no discussion, boys. I'm the president. That's the language. Bye. See ya. Um, However, and so, so my argument is that according to this memo from, based on this memo written by General Maxwell Taylor, it is inconceivable that that language was not in NSAM 263. Maxwell Taylor would not have put it in the memo that he wrote to all of the other heads of the military services the next day. He wouldn't have put it in there. Galbraith makes that argument, right? One of a very, very mainstream, you know, credentialed up the wazoo, the son of, you know, of John Kenneth Galbraith, the uh, U.S. ambassador and close friend of Kennedy. He's making the argument that if the language hadn't been there, that if Maxwell Taylor had any alternative but to include that language, he would not have included it. He didn't have any alternative. It was there and it was black and white. Hmm. It turns in the same article, Galbraith mentions that McNamara gave a speech 35 years later at the Kennedy Library. It may not have been, no, it's close to 35 years later, 1999. Um, <laughs> Yeah, 36 years later, gave a speech in the Kennedy Library in which he said that Kennedy had ordered that all U.S. personnel would be removed from Vietnam by December 1965. That language was in NSAM 263. It's not there now. Fletcher Prouty, um, and for the people who don't know, in the movie JFK, and if you haven't seen the movie JFK, you should. It's... it's I'd, I think it's one of the finest pieces of work you, that could possibly be imagined. I mean, I've, I've, I spent 10 years trying to find something wrong with it, and I think that movie is close to perfect. I can't believe that people managed to raise objections about the, the content. It is so in, incredibly accurate. Anyway, in that movie, Garrison, the, the DA from New Orleans, meets with this very secretive CIA guy in Washington, and he refers to himself as Mr. X. Well, Mr. X, I, th- I thought, watching the movie, that they had invented Mr. X because they had to somehow explain all of these really crucial 
foreign policy details involving Vietnam and Kennedy's plans for withdrawal and, and his murder as a result. And it turns out that Mr. X is absolutely a real person. He was the number two guy in the CIA working at the Pentagon. Very, very, very high-ranking. Um, people are very likely familiar with a picture of Ed Lansdale um, signaling to the tramps that were arrested behind the grassy knoll. It's, it, it's a photograph that's gotten an enormous amount of play yeah. in various areas, but it also gets, gets play in the movie, and it also gets play uh, if you get, you know, the the notes, the video notes that come along, right, if you buy the DVD, right, there, there are video details that are supplied with that, and it gets a lot of play there. Edward Lansdale was a very, very, very high-ranking CIA official, and he was in Dallas, and he's signaling to the three tramps that were arrested in the railroad yard, which means that they were from the Grassy Knoll. If they were involved in the assassination, they had walked 50 feet from the Grassy Knoll to the railroad yard where they were arrested. Anyhow, Lansdale worked for Prouty. So Prouty is a very, very high-ranking individual. He was very intimate with major players in the assassination. And Prouty describes in just incredible detail, Prouty is a very, very talented guy. He's written a couple of books. He's good with words. He's not your standard military jarhead killer. Hmm. He's, you right, he's a gifted artist, among other things. And... <laughs> Although in some ways, as some of the sentences he utters, it's very clear that in many ways, in some ways, and let's say he's a standard military jarhead who uh, who understands killing people and sometimes misses the the fine points and the nuances uh, that might be extrapolated by an ordinary person with killing people with bombs. Anyhow, um, Prouty says that General Krulak, the head of the Marines, was working as a special assistant to Kennedy, which is confirmed by all of the documentation, and that Kennedy ordered Krulak to write the report of McNamara and Johnson, I'm sorry, McNamara and Maxwell Taylor. Kennedy wanted to get out of Vietnam. He had made the decision to get out of Vietnam, and he came up with a clever idea that he was going to send McNamara, and McNamara was the Secretary of Defense, and Maxwell Taylor, the, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the head of the U.S. military, to Vietnam. So they went to Vietnam, and they talked to everybody of any significance there, and then this is in, they spent four or five days, and then they got on a plane to fly back to the United States to give Kennedy their report. While they were doing that, Krulak and his crew were working feverishly to write the report for them. And one of the primary individuals involved in writing this report was, says Prouty, Prouty. So Prouty, now, in NSAM 263, it says, we are going to implement paragraphs 3, A, B, and C from the Maxwell Taylor report. And so when I say two, when I have been saying 263 for the last half an hour or so, in fact, that includes the Maxwell Taylor McNamara report. However, Maxwell Taylor and McNamara did not write the report. Kennedy wrote the report. Prouty wrote it for him. Prouty wrote a draft. 
And Krulak took it to Kennedy, and Kennedy sent it back with the instructions, we want language that will not just pull the military out, but that will pull the CIA out as well, so that the language that Maxwell Taylor, without doubt, quotes in his memo to the heads of all the other military services is all the all the ancillary personnel as well as all the military. And Prouty explains that Kennedy was very, very, very careful and very, very much involved in those few words of supreme importance because he wanted to make sure that the language would direct that the CIA also be removed from South Vietnam. Now, I mean, then let me just make the point that there were 16,000 advisors. There were probably 50,000 CIA people, right? The CIA just had this vast network in every single aspect, in every village of any significance, and, and, and a small platoon in every town of any significance, and just a vast army in Saigon mm. of, of individuals that were reporting to them and working for them and so on. The point is that 54 years later, I think it becomes, you, you, how rock solid is that? That the head of the Defense Department, McNamara, enunciates in very specific and clear terms all U.S. personnel, not all U.S. military personnel, all U.S. personnel out by 65. Maxwell Taylor, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, does the same, and Prouty says exactly the same words, and Prouty lets you know that Maxwell Taylor and McNamara did not write those words. Kennedy wrote them. They flew into Honolulu and were handed the report and were expected to know it by the time they landed in Washington eight or 12 hours later. And they got off the plane and handed the report to Kennedy that Kennedy had had handed to them. Now, Kennedy is incredibly naive at points, and this certainly was one of them, or at least that that's my observation, that Kennedy was, his plan was that he would make Maxwell Taylor and McNamara take the heat for this decision. He was going to make it their decision, but then you have these witnesses who saw Maxwell Taylor and McNamara back down from that language until they then walked in and met with Kennedy and then walked out with Kennedy standing behind them and said, that's the language. That could explain the conflicting reports from various observers whether or not Kennedy was actually going to withdraw the US from Vietnam. You know, I mean, you, you've shed a lot of light on it for me there personally in the way you've described it. And I can see how somebody, depending on what information was in front of them, could come down on one side or the other and be vehement in their argument. But uh, oh. you, you, you've really expanded on the shades of grey. It's not black and white at all, is it? Well, it is black and white, but... In ter- I mean, in terms of what the public have been fed, though, through various commentators... Oh no! It, it, equally <laughs> to the Explain to the largest that. extent, I thank you. I will <laughs> that. The, if you look at the documents that are easily available, it's solidly black. That Kennedy never said anything remotely resembling uh, the language that he was going to withdraw from Vietnam, and you can't possibly make that case. 
And that's what Chomsky says. And I used to say terrible things about Chomsky for saying that. And, I mean, Chomsky used to argue that it didn't matter whether Kennedy was murdered or not because he wasn't going to withdraw from Vietnam anyhow. And in saying that, Chomsky is really completely and honestly rooted in the available documents. But when you get to, you know, this material, if if you Google the language from the Maxwell Taylor report, it does not appear anywhere. If you put quotation marks around it, it does not show up. And, oh man, I'll tell you what, I, I, I bought a book on, on a related subject from Google Books. And when I find something that I think is enormously important, and then I run into something else that, that right, like I'm saying, you, you, you get a couple of pages later and you read something that say, makes you say, oh my gosh, that thing I read two pages before now has this enormous significance, but I don't remember exactly where it was. And you Google, you, you do a search through Google, right? I got the book through Google and you do a search for that exact quote and it doesn't come up. Right. And it, to me, it's like my experience at the card catalog in the Los Angeles library, there is no bottom to the depth of deception. But the truth that Kennedy planned to get out of Vietnam is blazing white. You, you, any, anyone with McNamara's statements, Prouty's statements, and Galbraith's, I'm sorry, um, Galbraith's statements, sure, but Maxwell Taylor's statement in hand, who tried to suggest that Kennedy was not planning to get out of Vietnam, ought to be taken out and beaten with a stick for, you know, criminal um, misrepresentation of just in violently important facts on the one hand. On the other hand, if you're like Chomsky, I think that Chomsky's very, very well grounded in saying that Kennedy had no plans for withdrawing from Vietnam. The official record proves, shows clearly, I think, that Kennedy had no plans for getting out of Vietnam. Now, I would suggest, it, it, it occurred to me um, at some point, be, before I ran into this 263 stuff, right, the, the real stuff, before I ran into that, I said, well, look, right, when, I'm, when I have Chomsky on one shoulder and Peter Dale Scott on the other, arguing whether Kennedy planned to get out of Vietnam, the place that I came down was that if Kennedy was involved in the overthrow of DM, he had no plans to get out of Vietnam, that the only possible glimmer of hope that the United States would be able to withdraw from Vietnam rested upon the the brave but not hardy shoulders of DM and his brother knew um, So then you have to address this question of whether or not Kennedy supported the murder of DM. And again, the official record overwhelmingly shows, I think, that Kennedy absolutely was gave the orders that DM should be overthrown and stood back and watched it happen. And I can tell you, geez, that... Lynn, Hubert Humphrey, who became president, no, he was vice president, became Lyndon Johnson's vice president. Yeah. Anyway, 
Hubert Hubert Humphrey went to Johnson's house, and John the day after the assassination or something, and Johnson had a picture of DM hanging on his wall. Johnson had been to Vietnam and he had met DM, and he thought DM was a fine man. And I'm here to tell you that everything negative that you have heard about DM is garbage. Right? There's all of this stuff about how DM did this and that and the other thing to the Buddhists. All of that was CIA. All of that was CIA. And none of it, if it had happened and hadn't been CIA, none of it would have been in the papers if it had not been CIA. When when this Buddhist monk, are you familiar with the, the Buddhist monk who set himself on fire? Yeah, that iconic picture that we see from time to time. Yes, well... Halberstram, one of the famous reporters, and I think the guy's name is Brown, the most famous photographer, both got a call saying, be at this time, be here at this place at this time. And, you know, who's given them this order? Nobody, well, according to them, nobody that would have made them act. The information that they received was not such that they would have been there, but they were there. And the reason that they were there was because that order did not come from some unknown and really irresponsible Buddhist monk. It came from the Central Intelligence Agency. You guys better be there. And there they are. Um, and But, you know, monks had burned themselves alive before, and monks burned themselves alive subsequently. But you, they didn't they didn't have the two top reporters in Vietnam standing there waiting for it to happen in, in the previous and subsequent incidents. This was a CIA operation. In, in the movie, um, I'm changing the subject a little bit, and maybe I shouldn't, but um, Graham Greene, are you familiar with him? I'm not, no. Who's, who's he? Oh, really? Okay. Well, um, th- this is interesting. Uh, you you were schooled in Ireland, yes? Oh, schooled is an interesting word. Um, I certainly wouldn't use education either, but uh, I, I was sent to you an institution in Ireland. Were, exactly. Yeah, and I've spent the rest of the time ever since trying to unlearn. Absolutely. Oh, no, I, I used to say I dropped out of college to get an education. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I had honors at entrance at a top university, at the top university, the most competitive university in California. And that's saying a mouthful. Mm-hmm. And it was my observation while I was there that I was being taught garbage and that, you know, all of the all of the stuff was going on in the real world. And so I dropped out and I didn't stop being a student. I just stopped being um propaganda. I said, now that I wasn't being assigned to read all this garbage, I had time to read, you know, Mark Lane and then read the people who were cited in the footnotes, right? Yeah. Uh, to, read, to read Peter Dale Scott, which is no walk in the park. Anyhow, Graham Greene, I went to Catholic school for 12 years. Okay. And Graham Greene is a Catholic. He's a British Catholic. And he's very much, right, if you go to a Catholic school, I would have thought that as an Irishman, um, and the Catholic, the Catholics control the schools in Ireland, if I'm not mistaken. Isn't that correct? Yeah, they did um, up to quite recently. And some would argue that they still do, although the claim is that they don't. But uh, yeah, oh, broadly speaking, well, you're correct. Yeah. Yeah, there are there are very there. There may be an argument about it, but there are very, very uh, expert individuals you know, serious people like Peter Dale Scott and Noam Chomsky, who would say that the Catholics still control education in in Ireland, with few exceptions. There well, are I certainly wouldn't are, argue with that. There are some schools that are independent. And so I'm I'm rather surprised to, to hear that this major Catholic author was not somebody who they made you read. He's somebody that they made me read, but they didn't make me read the book 
The Quiet American. And there's a movie starring Michael Caine called The Quiet American. And I would suggest it's one of the most important movies that has ever been made. The book that Graham Greene wrote, he, he tells you in the beginning that, well, I changed this person's name and I changed that person's name and I changed this address. <laughs> That's what he says, which right. is to say the rest of the story is true. And the, the rest of the story is how the CIA blew up cars full of plastic explosives in marketplaces and blamed it on the communists. And one of the things that set and Graham Greene was there. Okay, Hmm. Graham Greene worked for British intelligence during World War Two. Well, guess what? And then after the war, he worked for the Times of London, except he didn't file his reports with the Times of London. He filed them with British intelligence. Okay, so he, he continued to be British intelligence, but he was also a man of principle and he, you know, he filed the stories with the Times of London and they didn't published them. So then he wrote the book, The Quiet American, and he's sitting there in this marketplace at at a little, you know, French cafe in the marketplace. And he sees this reporter that he knows come walking up and he sees this photographer that he knows comes walking up and he he yells to the photographer, what's going on? And the photographer says, oh, I don't know, some stupid thing. I, I don't even know what it is. They just told me to be here. So I'm here. Kaboom. The car blows up. And the quiet American who, I mean, this is the plot of the story. And, yeah. and it's really, really a wonderful story. And I, I hesitate to ruin it for people, but I'm sorry, I'm going to do it. Graham Greene knew this guy for, and, and was close to him. And Lansdale says it was him. You can find an army of people saying it wasn't Lansdale, including Graham Greene, who says it wasn't Lansdale, you know, because he he knew that Lansdale was tickled at having been the star of a Graham Greene hit. Um, But Lansdale says it was him. And you can assemble enough other facts to make it clear that Lansdale was there directing the photographer, directing the police to stop interfering with the photographer who was taking these pictures, which would then show up on the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post and be used as a justification for just, you know, um, by a factor of 100 increase in funding for CIA operations in Vietnam. This is in the 1950s, um, mid to late 1950s. Anyhow, the one I... So that when I'm reading Halberstram and Brown, the reporter and the photographer, describe the circumstances under which they just happened to be right where they needed to be to take the pictures and file the story, which then showed up on the front page. You've seen them, right? They're many years old. Yeah. And you've seen them, right? Well, well, ah. Uh, the reason that the Buddhists were protesting is because they had, there was a very small incident, a very minor incident. Um, one of the members of the DM regime made a mistake and <clears throat> probably under CIA influence, now that I think of it, almost without a doubt, right, I'm, t- I'm telling you, they had a platoon of individuals in every town and this was in way, so they would have had several platoons of individuals in this um, 
it's not a major city except by Vietnamese standards, and it's like the number three city in Vietnam. Um, there was a minor incident where the local official told the Buddhists that they should take down these Buddhist flags that they had had flying. Yeah. And the Buddhists protested, and a bomb went off and killed, I don't know how many people, let's say 17, something, I, I don't want to say 40, and it was certainly more than one or two. Mm. But... Um, you can find any number of knowledgeable individuals commenting on the fact that the the explosive force of that bomb was not such as was available to anyone who was not CIA connected. It was clearly plastic explosive. It was not um, any of it was not military, right? It, um, and I'm reading this book now, written by this woman who. <laughs> who worked for the Council on Foreign Relations, which is, you know, like another word for the CIA, but that, her job, she didn't, the same thing is true with USAID, right? USAID is an arm of the CIA, but not everybody who works for USAID is CIA, and a lot of them are very honest people, and because they're honest people, they are able to win the trust of individuals who they then report on, and they don't realize that they are reporting to the CIA. They think they're reporting to USAID, or they think that they're reporting to the Council on Foreign Relations. Anyway, this woman interviewed the CIA agent who says, yeah, I was the guy. That was me. I did that. And there's no dispute about who this guy, right? He, you name him, and oh yeah, he shows up in lots and lots of records as being a CIA operative in Vietnam at the time. And he not only corroborates what lots of knowledgeable people have said, i.e. that it was a CIA bomb, originated bomb because it was plastique, but he says he was the guy who supplied the plastique. So that that then made, that turned a very minor incident between the Buddhists and DM, which was simply a misunderstanding and had nothing to do with anything. And DM regretted it, regretted that the misunderstanding took place. But from that day forward, the U.S. demanded that DM prosecute the individuals who were responsible for that bombing and were determined that you have to do this or we're going to overthrow you. Well, I, they probably, I'm sure they didn't put it in those terms, but that's what they said to each other. To each other, they said, DM has to prosecute the individuals who were responsible for this bombing or we're going to overthrow him. And to the people in the know, to the CIA people, that is, which by whom I mean Averill Harriman and Henry Cabot Lodge, Right at, at the table of 20 people who just at the table of five people who decided that Kennedy was going to be murdered. Henry Cabot Lodge and, and Averill Harriman were seated at that table. Um, anyway, those guys understood that the what they were saying was not if DM doesn't prosecute these people, we're going to overthrow him. They were saying, we're going to overthrow DM. And the reason that they were going to overthrow DM, it's, geez, I'm, I'm reading this book. This woman, she's CFR, Council on Foreign Relations. She's a really, oh, and, and, you know, she's a scholar. And it's just an amazing piece of work. She spent at least 10 years and maybe 20 putting all of this stuff together. The evidence that DM and New were negotiating with the North to make peace it's just incredibly overwhelming. All of these French eyewitnesses, there's a, a Warsaw that, that is a Polish communist who they were using, the, um, 
who was using him? I'm trying. I don't. I don't remember anymore because he was working for both the North and the South, trying to facilitate these negotiations, which would throw the U.S. out of Vietnam. And Diem wanted the U.S. out of Vietnam because he wanted everybody who was not Vietnamese out of Vietnam, unless they were tourists. But he wanted everybody who wanted to run Vietnam to get the hell out of Vietnam and let the Vietnamese run Vietnam, which made him the arch enemy of the U.S. murderous, dark ruling elite who killed Kennedy for the same reason that they killed Diem because both of them wanted the same thing. And once you have that in your pocket, there's no conceivable way that Kennedy would have supported the overthrow of Diem. He would have been, he and Diem were absolutely on the same side. And you may have forgotten that I mentioned that Kennedy ordered Lodge to facilitate these negotiations between Diem and Ho Chi Minh, and Lodge's assistant tried to write a memo implementing Kennedy's direct orders, and Lodge crossed it out. The documents with his cross out exist. You know, it's one of these matrices, right, Mm -hmm. of history that this document where Kennedy is directing Lodge to facilitate the negotiations between Diem and Ho Chi Minh to make peace has been crossed out and then they sent then they sent the memo to Galbraith the ambassador US ambassador in India to urge the Indians who in fact did the Indians were facilitating the negotiations between DM and Ho Chi Minh anyway there's there's just so much there's there is a memo written by Lodge in which knew who is DM's brother and the number two guy tells Lodge memo written by Lodge that DM is that the North Vietnamese have accepted DM um, have accepted new DM's brother as the responsible empowered negotiator for DM and the South in the negotiations with the North. Okay, so we have this complex <laughs> web that has emerged and it culminates. I'm sorry, I, I I didn't mean to make it complex. In my head, it's it's clear as day. No, well, you have you have you haven't made it complex. You've actually actually oh. codified it quite a lot for me because there's so much stuff going on in parallel, and it all, of course, culminates then in the death of JFK. And you've mentioned two of the names who were around the table or who may have made that decision. But we've got some other names as well, and you have access to those names. So let's move on to that and talk about who else was involved. Was it purely CIA? Was there anyone else? And what the Bush connection is there, too? Oh, let's jump off with Bush. Okay, let's do it. Um, it's, it's been so long since I watched my movie. Um, two things. And I'm going to go to my grave proud of this line. That, you know, and I'm impressed with myself that 20 years ago I I came up with this line that the more that I look at this stuff, the clearer it becomes to me that the Kennedy assassination was an extension of World War II. That the banker Nazis in this country who created Hitler, created Hitler. You you hear what I'm telling you? I sure do. Hitler was a manufacturer of American fascists. Now, with, you know, of course, cooperation from German fascists and British, I should say, banker fascists, including the Rothschilds. The the first meeting 
of the German Workers' Party that Hitler went to, everyone in attendance was an intelligence agent. They weren't all from the same intelligence service, but they were all from one service or another, all of which were controlled by the Nazi bankers who, you know, there was no Nazi party at the time. At the time, it was called the German Workers' Party. None of those guys were workers. Anyway, um, anyway, there was an article, and I'm going far, I'm not going far afield. This is right to the heart of the matter. There was an article written in 1942, August, of the New York Times. The New York Times is a history supplement. Uh, the title of which I don't recall, and the title of the article, and you can Google this, the people in your audience can Google this, and when they do, they are going to have their eyes lit up, is I was Hitler's boss. And there's a professor, I think at UC Santa Barbara, who published the article. He's, it's online, you can find it. I mean, I had to go down to the to the Central Library and dig around for a 1942 copy of the New York Times to find it. But this guy has made it easy for you. It was written by a guy named Captain Mayer. He is, if you find an 800-page scholarly biography of Hitler, this guy will be cited in the footnotes. Is this Carl Mayer, yeah? It might be. You'll find the article on Henry Mako's site, actually, henrymacko.com. Oh, sure, sure. Well, yeah. Henry got it for me. I, I don't, I, I suspect. Hen, Henry and I have had several very, very friendly communications, and I'm sure I shared that information. But I don't, you know, I don't mean to take anything away from, from Henry. Yeah, sure. Uh, but, and, and, and all praise and glory that he's got it posted on his site. Um, but like I'm telling you, is there are people who will point at Henry and say, oh, blah, 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 conspiracy theorist. Well, the guy who was posted at UC Santa Barbara is not, you know, he's a, he's a history professor and he is nothing remotely resembling a conspiracy theorist, which is not to his credit. <laughs> you know what I <laughs> yeah, mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, right? He's, he's got a tunnel vision. But nevertheless, it, it, I'm telling you, this is a very, 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 very mainstream historical document Carl Mayer says that he was working for British intelligence, I'm sorry, German intelligence, that he recruited Hitler. He says, if I'm not mistaken, Hitler was an official that there was a, I, I don't want to go too far afield, World War I, you will not find this in any history book. World War I was ended by a communist revolution in Germany. Right. World War I had the wind taken out of its sails by a communist revolution in Russia. But when the communists took over, and this, there's no question about, the communists took over the government in, and the government buildings in Berlin, and they took over the government buildings in... At the time, we're probably talking about Munich, yeah? Munich, thank you. Munich. The the communists had taken over the government buildings in Munich, and Hitler was a member of the German army posted in Munich. And obviously, if his army post did not go down and attack the government buildings to oust the communists, it's because they were sympathetic to the communists. And the day that they ended World War One, the Allies went through the German army and questioned every soldier, do you support the Kaiser? And if you answered no, they handed you, you know, 20 bucks in your papers and said, go home. And if you said yes, 
they recruited you to what was called the Free Corps, F-R-E-I-K-O-R-P-S, and they sent this new ultra-right military, and there weren't very many soldiers. <laughs> I mean, all of the soldiers in Munich had gone over to the communists, who, right, well, that's another long story. But anyway, um, I mean, we've all been brought up to hate the communists, and the same way that Native Americans are brought up to worship the U.S. military. <laughs> it was a, a fine case, right, and, and the garbage that you were taught in school and the garbage that I was taught in school. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, I'm going to try to – so Hitler was recruited. Meyer says he recruited Hitler. Hitler was not anti-Semitic. They taught him anti-Semitism. Uh, oh, there's any number of stories from Hitler's history before that that show very clearly that he was not anti-Semitic, and I won't go into them, but, you know, they're substantive. They trained him in anti-Semitism. They trained him in speech giving. They would have a, a group of soldiers who were about to be decommissioned walk into a room. Hitler, this is all according to Captain Mayer. Hitler would stand up and give a speech to these soldiers. The soldiers would leave. Hitler's instructors would critique the speech. They'd bring in a fresh group of soldiers. Hitler would give the speech again. And this went on uh, for days and weeks until Hitler was a very, very competent speech giver. And then Captain Mayer says... I ordered Hitler to go join the Nazi party. Captain Mayer continues, now, I knew this was illegal because it's illegal for members of the military to belong to political parties, but General Ludendorff ordered me to, he walked into my office and he ordered me to send Hitler to the Nazi meetings where Hitler was promptly appointed by the intelligence people at the meetings to become der Fuhrer. Ludendorff, he says, Meyer, was meeting with the biggest bankers in Germany at the Four Seasons Hotel in Munich. Would you care to guess where the SS wing that ran the Holocaust was headquartered? The Four Seasons Hotel in Munich. Last word on the subject. The bankers, if you, sorry, I'm going to go take a down this road for a second because it's worth it. I spoke to a, a Holocaust survivor who explained to me that he was nine years old and was moving from house to house late in the war at nine years old. And all of his life, he wondered, what the hell was the German army doing pursuing this nine-year-old kid? That doesn't make any sense except that. If you kill every member of the family, there's no one to claim the bank deposits, which were worth a trillion 1948 dollars, which is, I mean, you do the math, 200 trillion dollars today. <laughs> God only knows. <laughs> that's, that's money, you know, 200 trillion dollars. Damn, there you, you are not going to find anyone who doesn't think 200 trillion dollars is money. And I'm here to tell you that the bankers created Hitler, well, so is Captain Meyer, but I'm here to tell you based on the, the best, most solid mainstream evidence available. So, it, however, the main German banker, and you'll find this, I found this in a right-wing analysis of who financed Hitler, written by an American right-winger who disputed the notion that Hitler was a representative of the bankers, as I'm suggesting. And one of the pieces of evidence that he points to is that, and Captain Meyer describes how at a Nazi rally, this is in Depression Germany, you would have sausage, 
and you would have music, and you would have beer, and when everybody was well-fed and drunk, Hitler would stand up and give a speech, and that's the basis upon which they created, and, and, and all of the propaganda, all of the posters promoting the meeting at which they were going to have the sausage and beer and Hitler in that order, um, <laughs> the army produced the posters and put them up. <laughs> anyway, says Mayer. Anyway, uh, Fritz Tyson was the main German financier who funded the Nazi party and the funds that you can show came from Tyson to the Nazi party do not come close to covering the expenses. Where did that money come from? Well, Tyson was meeting with Harriman. Okay, Averill Harriman. And I'm going to go through this rather quickly, but Averill Harriman ran Brown Brothers Harriman and as the head of Brown Brothers Harriman, he directed a bank, well, he created a bank called Union Bank of New York, which funded all sorts of Nazi enterprises. And in 1942, Union Bank of New York was seized by the FBI as a Nazi asset. The CEO of Union Bank was Prescott Bush the father of George H.W., the grandfather of George W. Prescott Bush owned one share of Union Bank, and um, Averill Harriman owned 4,000 shares. So that's the relationship between Prescott and Averill Harriman, but I would argue, <clears throat> between you and me, we're going to set up a spy agency, right? Mm. You and me. But because it's publicly funded, we have to name the director of our spy agency. So we have to give a name. Are we going to give the name of the real director or are we going to give him somebody else's name? Well, I'll go for somebody else personally. Okay, well, Prescott Bush met daily with Eisenhower. Dulles did not meet daily with Eisenhower. There is this... American reporter who for years and you know he's 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 very patriotic and as a patriot he hates the Bushes <laughs> and he's very pro CIA and as a pro CIA individual he hates the Bushes and the things that they have done to destroy the good name of the CIA like dealing crack for example but um, this guy interviewed because of his friendly stance over the course of a 40-year career. He had lots of friends in the CIA, including Jesus Angleton, and Jesus Angleton is the guy who supplied this individual. And I, I, I think his name is Corson. I don't have the book in front of me. Uh, I think his name is Corson. I could be mistaken. Um, and there, my office is in another building. Anyway, he, this individual, this reporter who, who did all this reporting over the course of 40 years and who I regard as, well, on, on the one hand, he is so patriotic and so pro-CIA that I think that it does color his, his judgment a lot of the time. Nevertheless, when he's reporting facts, he's reporting, I think, to a very large extent, what he believes to be true. And he interviewed this individual who describes a CIA operation in which they were supposed to uh, poison Cho and Lai. And then at the last minute, the operation was called off. Well, the poison bowl of rice was sitting in front of 
show and they had to run in and seize the bull. And in the, in the process, this guy got shot and he was in the hospital. And this guy gets a call from his supervisor saying, you're going to get interviewed. Do not discuss this with anyone except the guy who's going to be there in 20 minutes to interview you. And in walks to debrief you and in walks Prescott Bush who in the course of the debriefing, says the witness, demonstrated that he was completely familiar with all aspects of this operation. A few (laughs) hours later, Dulles calls, and the guy says, I can't talk to you. Why not? You don't have clearance. What? I'm the head of CIA. What do you mean I don't have clearance? Uh, I have instructions. You don't have clearance. So I think that Dulles is a straw man. I, it's the, the technical term actually is a cutout. The guy who you cut out and put out in front to take the blame and to take the heat. Um, a straw man might be another word. Flat catcher might be another word. Uh, but who has no connection to what's really going on. And I think that Prescott Bush is that guy. In any case, um, let's see. I don't have any idea where we are time-wise and I'm not, oh, we're, <laughs> we're way over. We're way but over, we but that's okay. Let's, let's keep going. Well, we haven't got to the good part. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm going to, but I'll try to make this brief. George H.W. Bush and the Kennedy assassination. George H.W. Bush is the only, the only person on the planet besides E. Howard Hunt who Angleton wrote a memo saying Hunt was in Dallas. They're trying to blame the assassination on me, says Angleton. Hunt was in Dallas. He was involved in the assassination. This is going to be brought out in the Senate investigation. And he hands this to a couple of reporters and it ends up making the papers. And it was that memo was the basis of the plausible denial book by um Mark Lane, which is, I'll say it again, and you can all write it down, Plausible Denial. That's a book. If you're interested, if if you're on fire on this subject, it is, I would put in the top five, certainly, and maybe the top two uh, important books on understanding the assassination. Anyhow, George Herbert Walker Bush, um, Hunt, Angleton, Bush. It comes out, oh, Bush and Hunt are two of the people who can't tell you where they were the day that Kennedy was shot. Hunt gave five different alibis, all of which have been proved to be false. Bush, in learning his lesson from that, said, I was somewhere in Texas. I don't remember where. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Well, I can take you to the building and the room and the seat that I was in when Sister Mary Patrick came to the door and and told uh, Sister Mary Oliver that that Kennedy was dead. Um, But Bush was somewhere in Texas. He can't get any closer than that. But I'll tell you what, all of the anti-Castro Cubans, that may be a slight exaggeration, but not much. Many of the CIA's anti-Castro Cubans have said that they were in Dallas the day that Kennedy was murdered. Marita Lorenz, who... Richard Helms, in the plausible denial trial, testified was a CIA CIA agent, says that she got into a (laughs) station wagon, one of two, that were full of men and guns. And this is in the this is in the plausible denial trial and drove to Dallas to a motel. They they stopped at the motel and E. Howard Hunt came walking in. 
passing out maps and money. And in the trial, the, the, the CIA lawyer says, really, you were in the station wagon. Can, can you name the individuals? And she says, yes. And he says, well, name them. And she says, you want me to name the CIA people who were, yes. And so she does. And many of the people that she names have been interviewed and have confirmed her story that they were in Dallas. None of them, and you know, the CIA, I'm sorry, the Cubans are blabbermouths. And they're famous for it. And, you know, you can find people who are very anti-Castro and very pro-anti-Castro Cuban who will say the same thing. And none of them will tell you who pulled the trigger. And I think that the reason that they won't tell you who pulled the trigger is because they don't know who pulled the tr trigger. One of the, the prime names in this story is Frank Sturgis, who, as I say, um, confirmed Lorenz's story and later got arrested for threatening to, in New York City, got arrested for threatening to kill Marita Lorenz anyhow. Um, so the anti-Castro Cubans were all there and, and apparently involved in some manner, in some fashion. And, and it's my observation that they were there as smoke and mirrors. They were there for the genuine killers to hide behind. And... Uh, Joseph McBride, who I mentioned earlier as the source for Dale Yarborough saying that the limousine stopped, Senator, Texas Senator Dale Yarborough saying that the limousine stopped. McBride was researching uh, um, um, Hollywood movies and he, he got fed up with that and he took a break and did some research on the Kennedy assassination and went through this 90,000 page pile of documents that had been released in that as a lump as 90,000 pages and he finds this memo dated three days it might be five days after the assassination um, written by J. Edgar Hoover title of the memo is assassination of President John F. Kennedy and well this is interesting right? I mean this is something that we should be paying attention to and in the memo Hoover lies clearly lies and says the State Department is afraid that the CIA's anti, he calls them in the memo, the exact wording is that some misguided anti-Castro group, meaning some group of Cubans under the guidance of the Central Intelligence Agency may be planning an invasion of Cuba and we would like the FBI to investigate that. Well, if the State Department knew it, they knew it because Hoover had told them and Hoover certainly knew it. Hoover knew it in great detail. Um, I'll point out to people something that they probably know but have never given sufficiently serious consideration to, which is that the first meeting of the Warren Commission, the attorney general of the state of Texas calls the Earl Warren and tells him that Lee Harvey Oswald is an is a FBI agent receiving $200 a month with the employee number S179. And I had that piece of information rattling around in my head for 10, 15 years before it suddenly occurred to me. And it's probably because I was in having a involved in some, some dispute that required me to be paying a lot of attention to my pay stubs. And it struck me, how did he know his employee number? How did he know his exact pay? He had, he, and how would he have the confidence Right, I don't care who you heard it from. Oh, I heard this story. Yeah, and, and so I think I'll call up the Chief Justice of the, of the United States and tell him this story that I heard. 
He had Oswald's pay stub in his hand. You cannot possibly persuade me that he would have made that phone call under any other circumstances. Now, you know, you believe what you want, but mm. that my experience of life is that an attorney general of a state is not going to make an inflammatory statement like that if he doesn't have absolutely positively rock solid evidence that it's the case. He had Oswald's pay stub in his hand, which explains the sort of, you know, strange collection of, of evidence that he had. My point is that Hoover knew a lot because Oswald was one of his prime agents in the field. Hoover knew a lot. And I was mentioning before, and I know this is scattered, but I'm going to say it because it's important. Lots and lots and lots of people have asked the question, when did they decide that they were going to kill Kennedy? And I can tell you they moved Oswald to the Texas School Depository from New Orleans in August. The memo that was written by Harriman, attributed falsely to Kennedy, written by Harriman, says Robert Kennedy. Nobody else. You won't find that anywhere but in this one interview where Robert Kennedy says Harriman wrote it. It was attributed to Kennedy. It directs Lodge to murder DM, which is why Kennedy takes the blame for DM's murder. I was mentioning that Lyndon Johnson blamed Kennedy for DM's murder. Yeah. Lyndon Johnson, who liked DM, blamed Kennedy for DM's murder. And he, he's not the only one. Anyhow, um, this, this woman who's reading, writing this fabulous book that I'm reading, uh, Death in November, blames Kennedy for DM's murder because she doesn't, you know, she's, she is focused on DM and DM's negotiations with North Vietnam as the cause. Anyhow, that decision was made in August. It, it strikes me that, and you, we know this, so one of the reasons that I think that we know this is that we can point to Oswald's getting, being directed, being moved from New Orleans to the Book Depository Building, which coincides with this memo ordering Lodge to murder DM, which he was going to do anyway, but now he's got, you know, he's got a ticket. Nobody's going to challenge the fact that he did it because, oh, I had instructions from Kennedy to do it. So my point is, my point was supposed to be that Hoover knew a lot. There's no way that the State Department told the FBI about CIA and CIA Cuban plans for invading Cuba, which they were doing. And, you know, there's just an enormous wealth of information showing that these guys were before the assassination were running around saying there's going to be an event that's going to justify us invading <coughs> Cuba. So in, in this this memo that Hoover has written starts off with a lie that the State Department asked us to investigate. Well, that's Hoover covering his ass, saying it wasn't. We didn't start this crap. So we went down to Miami and we interviewed a bunch of Cubans and we found that they were all very, very distraught over the president's murder. They were celebrating. So this is a second really major lie, um, obvious to anyone paying any attention that this is a major lie and then buried down at the at the second to last sentence so so he lies and says that the state department told him to investigate he lies and says that the investigation shows that the cubans were not planning any invasion they were in fact distraught over the president's murder and then he slips in that this information was relayed to mr george bush of the Central Intelligence Agency by, and I forget the man's name, he was Hoover's number one right-hand man. He had the office next to Hoover, and it gives the date, 
on November 23rd, 1963, the day after the assassination, George Herbert Walker Bush was called into FBI headquarters and questioned about the assassination. And boy, would I like to know what he told them when they asked him where he was. That would have been interesting. Somewhere it's, in Texas. <laughs> some, yeah, I, I don't think the FBI accepts that as an answer, in, in a, especially in a situation when they know that all of Bush's people, that Sturgis and, and a number of other, let me take that back. I, um, <clears throat> there's a guy named James Files who was a member of this anti-Castro Cuban CIA operation, Operation Mongoose, who names Bush as being one of the recruiters for that operation. Anyway, so the, McBride finds this memo and says, oh my God, and he, he ignores everything, and so does everybody else, um, except the fact that here is Hoover saying that George Bush was a member of the CIA. He... Pretty much, and you know, I, I don't want to blame McBride in the least. His editors probably cut out anything that tried to tie Bush to the Kennedy assassination by this memo. But goddamn, you know, the FBI interviewed Frank Sturgis like the day or the, certainly within the week, a couple of days after the assassination. Sturgis says so. Jerry Hemings, who was in Dallas and in one of the, the station wagons and named by Marie, Marita Lorenz, says he was interviewed by the FBI in the days after the assassination and asked about what the hell he was doing in Dallas. Marita Lorenz says that she was interviewed by the FBI and she tried to tell them about the station wagon and the people in it. And they said, yeah, 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 we know, we know. So <laughs> Hoover, in writing this memo, has told everything is a lie except at the part where he he says that that they called Bush in to tell him the story. They didn't call Bush in to tell him the story. They called him in to ask him where the hell he was. And what a, an interesting side note, and I'd really hate to, to diverge, but the FBI called Nixon in to ask him if he had, and, and they made up the similarly ridiculous story about why they were asking him. They said, Oswald, we're, we're investigating whether or not Oswald was perhaps planning to assassinate you. Have you ever been in Dallas? And uh, Nixon says, uh, no. And, or, or maybe, maybe he was there once. And the FBI says, <clears throat> I'm getting this from Jim Mars. I've never been able to find the place where the FBI says, <clears throat> uh, can we remind you that you were in Dallas the day that Kennedy was murdered? Oh, yeah. I uh, seem to have forgotten about that one. <laughs> and in addition to which, and in my movie, I make the point that Oswald, uh, Oswald, that Nixon tells one magazine one story about how he learned that Kennedy was dead, and he tells a different magazine. Uh, he tells Esquire one thing, and he tells Reader's Digest. Uh, he tells one of them that it's a man who comes running out, and he tells one of the other ones that it's a woman who comes running out. Well, I don't have to hesitate about telling you which nun it was who came to the door to, to yeah. tell us uh, that John Kennedy was dead. So obviously Nixon is lying about that story and how he learned of Kennedy's death, I don't know. Um, but the point is, George Herbert Walker Bush is, is tied to the assassination by his failure to remember. Um, now, there's a guy who's written a book uh, who's, forget about it, I don't even want to give him a plug, but, because there's a number of scores that I have with him that make me think he's an operative, but... 
He went down to the Dallas Morning News. He may have been directed down to the Dallas Morning News. I rather suspect that he was. And was shown, oh, I'm sorry, that um, there's another FBI memo <laughs> where, where Bush calls the FBI the day of the assassination, uh, an hour after the assassination. And almost immediately after Cronkite announced that Kennedy was dead, almost simultaneously, Bush calls the FBI, and it doesn't matter. I won't go into what it is that he says. Who cares? He, he called him to say, oh, I think you should investigate this, this individual who cl- clearly was not involved. And he tells them that he is staying that night at the Sheraton Hotel in Dallas. So we know that he was in Dallas that day. Well, yeah, but he wasn't there till the night. No, we don't know that he wasn't there till the night. We know that he wasn't somewhere in Texas. He was in Dallas. And we don't know where he was at this point. We could suggest that we don't know where he was in the morning, but we know where he was planning to stay at night. Well, this guy, Russ Baker, this, re- this researcher who, like I said, I suspect is an operative and a misinformer, but somebody directed him or he found it on his own, went down to the Dallas Morning News and found an advertisement in the Dallas Morning News from the day before the assassination announcing that George Bush... And the president of the Independent Oil Contractors Association was going to be speaking at the Dallas Sheraton the night before the assassination. So we can unequivocally, right, rock solid, put him there the night before and put him there the night of. Well, gee, you think he might have been in Dallas between those two things? Now, I put together all. So, so Bush was confronted about the FBI memo that McBride found Mr. George Bush of the CIA. Uh, He was confronted about that, and he told people that he was not in the CIA at that time and that it must have been another George Bush. And we don't have to go down that trail. Um, That was his story, and in order to refute that, um, I showed that a, a letter that Webster Tarpley found of... I believe the letter is written by Prescott to Alan Dulles saying we're going to meet with Neil Mallon to discuss our pilot project in the Caribbean. And it's very, very clear from Bush. There's another letter that Herb Webster Tarpley found from Prescott to C.D. Jackson, a high-ranking CIA misinformer who also ran Life magazine. So, yeah, this guy's a high-ranking CIA misinformer if he's the editor of Life magazine. <laughs> and he's he's writing to C.D. Jackson saying, please, uh, this is to recommend Neil Mallon, an important recruiter for the Central Intelligence Agency. Very helpful to the agency in that regard and in, in recruiting uh, reliable individuals. George Herbert Walker Bush left Yale where he was a member of Skull and Bones, well, as were Harriman and Bundy. Um, and that's enough. But, and I don't want to go any deeper in that. But a, a lot of CIA uh, cornerstones, founders, were in Skull and Bones. Anyway, jeez, um, I shouldn't have said anything about that. Where was I? Um <laughs> Oh, so I'm putting together all this mad stuff showing that. Oh, Bush left 
Yale. He left Skull and Bones, which tied him to the CIA at very, very high levels. And he went to work for Neil Mallon, who's a CIA recruiter. And then he goes and goes to work right in the middle of CIA operations in the Caribbean. And so I'm making the argument that given that context, and there's no way that this is that this reference to George Herbert Walker Bush as clearly if he's received if if Hoover's report was true that he was giving answers to Bush rather than asking questions to Bush, mm. you would call in a supervisor for that, right? If you're calling in anybody from the CIA to CIA headquarters, that's a high-ranking individual. Now, um, boy, I'm not making this, it doesn't sound to me like I'm making this as short as I possibly can. Um, do you mind if we roll on? That's okay. Let's keep going. Okay. Good. And, 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 Take my word for it. It's worth it. So the, my point was that I'm piecing together all these bits and pieces to establish that George Herbert Walker Bush is the Mr. George Bush of the CIA who's in this Hoover memo. And I would argue that the FBI knew an enormous amount about Bush and his involvement in the assassination. And they called him in the FBI headquarters. And it breaks my heart that we don't have the real story about what they asked him and what he answered. But if Hoover had written a memo that said, we know that the CIA Cubans were all in Dallas and named a bunch of them. And we know this because Oswald told us because he had infiltrated them. Marita Lorenz says that Oswald was at the meeting at the motel where Hunt walked in and started passing out maps and money. James Files says Oswald was at the meeting at the motel where E. Howard Hunt came walking in and started passing out maps and money. <clears throat> and Peter Dale Scott says, yeah, but those guys are crooks. They're criminals. You can't take their word about anything. No, but then we have this FBI memo written by J. Edgar Hoover, um, which you know, you're supposed to take as reliable. If, he, if Hoover had written the memo in a straightforward fashion, we wouldn't have it. It would have been destroyed, like it were rewritten the way NSAM 263 was. But because he made the memo long and because he filled it full of boring lies at the start, the guy whose job it was was to read that memo and see whether it contained any important information and remove it if it did, being the lazy turd that he is, didn't get to the line and in it, it's, it's a little bit difficult to read. I mean, if you study it, it's clear that it says, now no one has ever disputed that it says Mr. George Bush of the CIA, but the, the guy missed it. And all praise and glory to J. Edgar Hoover. And if you want to challenge me on that, feel free to do it, but that ain't where we're going at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, we, have, we have a Dallas Morning News article putting George Bush at, the, Bush at the Sheridan the night before. We have a CIA memo, not the one written by Hoover, but written by an, another, I'm sorry, an FBI memo written by Hoover saying that Bush was in Washington talking to Hoover's right-hand man the day after the assassination. And I say he was being questioned because that's what all of the rest of his associates in Operation 40 say, that they were questioned by the FBI. Um, and I get an email from, and, and this one's going to curl your hair and you'll be glad you stuck around for two hours. Ah, I get a, an email from a, a friend of mine, Bob Fox, who says, look at this stuff. This article written by Roger Craig. And Roger Craig was a Dallas detective who saw Oswald come running down the grassy knoll and get into 
a station wagon being driven by a very, very dark Latino and drive away uh, a Rambler station wagon, which clearly belonged to Ruth Payne. Anyway, um, he then went up to the book depository building and is standing there with the police chief and another uh, police officer who was a firearms expert because he ran a sporting goods store. And they pick up the rifle that they found and the policeman points to Mauser stamped into the barrel and they all look at it and say huh mauser so this guy roger craig and he craig then reports this information to anybody who will listen which makes him he he won he won deputy of the year the year before but he got fired a short time later and uh got got shot at on a street corner and, and wounded and then uh <coughs> if you believe the story murdered himself well sure he did of course he was so depressed about the important information that he knew anyway he became a good friend of, when he got fired, in fact, Jim Garrison hired him. Jim Garrison, the guy from New Orleans, New Orleans district attorney, who's the centerpiece of the movie JFK, hired Roger Craig. And Roger Craig wrote this article that I'm afraid I can't tell you the title of. It's on ratville.org, R-A-T-ville.org. Uh, and if you, if you Google Roger Craig in Ratville, it'll come up. Uh, it's very likely that if you Google Roger Craig and Deputy Vaughn, it will come up. But so, Roger Craig We've tells the story. We've got it here. When, when they kill a president. Okay, very good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm, I'm, giving, I'm giving good citations, and I thank you for verifying that for me. Anyhow, so read that article. It's fascinating reading. Well, I don't know how much time anybody has. I'm going to get to the punchline for you. Um. Garrison is trying to bring a case against Clay Shaw for murder. And he has been a district attorney for many years. Um, and he was a prosecutor for many years before that. And he is used to police departments bending over backwards when he made requests for, for files and such. And now he's finding himself in the position where they refuse. And he asked, it, he woke up one morning, he, he got to know Roger Craig. And it he dawned on him one morning that, or maybe in his sleep, he, but he woke up and he said, wait a minute, the Dallas police probably arrested the shooters. They're good guys. They were all, all over the place. They probably arrested the shooters. Um, and so he subpoenaed all of the arrest records for Dealey Plaza that day, and the police refused to give it to him. And when they finally gave him one arrest record, he looked at it and said, this is garbage. This guy who you are describing clearly was sent in by the CIA. He's clearly CIA linked and, and he went in to get arrested. He went in to get arrested and he doesn't finish that equation. Well, why, who, who sent him? Well, clearly the CIA sent him, but why would they send this guy in to get arrested? He doesn't have a clue and I'll, I'll praise and glory, but you know, geez, he is who he is and he lived when he lived and he didn't have the, he, he wasn't able to read his books the way that I was. Anyhow, um, <clears throat> so Garrison is furious, and it's, you know, it's disturbing him greatly. And But he wakes up one morning and says, wait a minute. And he calls up Roger Craig, and he says, hey, you were deputy of the year in 1961, weren't you? And Craig says, yeah. He says, you got a bunch of friends on the force. You don't get elected deputy of the year without having friends. You know, people must have thought a lot of you. And Craig says, yeah, so of course I have a lot of friends. And and. 
Garrison says, go to Dallas. Uh, here's your ticket. And talk to your friends and see what they can tell you about who was arrested. And this is all in this article. And Roger Craig says that he did that. And then he talked to lots of people and learned a lot about this guy was arrested and that guy was arrested. But I hope you're paying attention. The major, I'm saying I may have put you to sleep, but if I put you to sleep, wake the hell up. The most important arrest, says Roger Craig, he thought was this one made by Deputy Vaughn. Deputy Vaughn went heard the shots from not the book depository he also heard shots from the building across the street the dal tex building hmm. and he walked over there and when he got there he found that the crowd had grabbed this individual who they who this crowd had also heard shots and they saw this guy come running out of the building with a panicked look on his face and they said we're grabbing this guy and they grabbed him and they handed him over to Deputy Vaughn. And Deputy Vaughn walked him across the street to the police station, which was across the street. And on the way across the street, Deputy Vaughn tells Roger Craig, this individual identified himself as an independent oil contractor from Houston. George Herbert Walker Bush gave a speech at the Dallas Sheridan the night before as the president of the Association of Independent Oil Contractors, and he was from Houston. The news gets slightly tighter, doesn't it? That guy, well, and now when I tell you, and in the video, I count the bullets that were shot. There is evidence if somebody fired a bullet and it hit the street and nobody noticed it, that didn't get counted. But if it hit the windshield and if it hit the rim, the metal rim at the top of the windshield, and if it hit Connolly and if it hit the grass and got dug out and if it hit the sidewalk and left a mark that a person saw when it was made and that the police then photographed because it looked like the impact of a bullet in the sidewalk, 14 shots that you can verify most of them from behind, as far as anybody that I know of knows, there were two shots from the front. One hit Kennedy in the throat, and the other hit him in the, the right temple and blew out the back of his head. And the one was fired when Kennedy was 100 yards away from the grassy knoll, and the other was fired, geez, I went there. It's like 30 feet from the fence to where Kennedy's head was when it had the brains blown out. It, you're right, and you know, it's shooting, <laughs> you got a telescopic sight and you're shooting a car that's parked. Yeah. Right? This this was not a difficult shot. Um, George Herbert Walker Bush was, now when I first heard that, I didn't draw that conclusion for anybody. I thought, no, that's, that's beyond belief. I, I, that's beyond belief. And then I found a quote from Prescott Bush complaining that little Georgie just felt like the world should be handed to him and that, no, you have to get out there and get your hands dirty, says Prescott. Mm. And because I thought, you know, Prescott was a senator, right? I mean, this, this kid, he's a princeling, right? You're the, and, and I would argue that Prescott was the, the genuine head of the CIA. Do, do, do people do that? If, if you're the son of the head of the mafia, do you have to kill somebody? And the answer to that question is yes. And do you know what the mafia calls it? You're being an Irishman, you probably don't. I don't have so, a clue, no. Making your bone. In, in American circles, literary and otherwise, it's a fairly common uh, 
you know, the, the Valachi papers and so on. It, it, it's a fairly well-known expression. Anyhow, it turns out that the banking mafia has the same rules as the Italian mafia, which is that if you're going to sit down at the table where we are discussing murder and mayhem and, you know, just massive crime, mm-hmm. you have to make your bone before you can sit down at the table. And when you make your bone, you are now what's called a made man. Okay. Well, I've heard and of that if one. Made, if you're, oh, well, okay. Well, do you know what it means? Well, to me, it seems that you're a made man because we've got dirt on you, so you can't really step out of line. You're in, and you're fully in, and that's the end of it. Oh, no. Well, I guess, okay, I, sure. I, I, I never thought of it. From That's the negative side. What's the positive side of being a made well, man? Well, the positive side of being a made man is that you're in that inner circle that you're looking to gain access to, so you have all the perceived rewards that come with it. You have a guaranteed income. If you get arrested for anything, you are going to have the best legal representation. If you get killed, your family is going to want for nothing. Mm. Right? That's what being a made man means. And, you know, that's, that's, an, that's an important thing if you're a member of the mafia, right? Yeah, anyway, so. <laughs> well, so, so, we haven't talked about John Kennedy Jr. <laughs> no, not yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're going to do that. I'm, I'm shooting for five minutes. Okay, let's go. All right. Um, I think I spent, it's not an exaggeration to say, I spent 10 years on both of these movies. But I read everything. Um, every newspaper article, every magazine article, I read the NTSB report, the National Transportation uh, Safety Administration report on the plane crash. I watched every video. I obtained copies of every video, including, and this this is no small feat, but it wasn't accomplished by me. I, I had an accomplice um, who managed somehow, and I won't, to, to get a copy of the video of the newscast out of Boston the morning that Kennedy's plane had gone missing the morning after the evening in which Kennedy's plane had gone missing. Mm. I talked to the head of, I talked to the guy whose signature was on the NTSB report, who seemed like a really good guy, and I have no complaints um, about the NTSB report as a whole. Um, uh, you know, and the Kennedys were sitting right on them. There's no, there's no way they could have done anything but an absolutely spick and span job and they did i mean they recovered thousands of pieces of the plane and they put it all together and the long and the short of it is that there's no explanation for why that plane went down they can't find any mechanical failures they can't find any electronic failures uh no evidence of any electronic failures and um the the moon was visible the sky was clear there's no accounting for why that plane went down. And in the NTSB report, they show you the plane made a slight increase in altitude, very slow and slight and steady, and it held at that point for a, a minute and a half, and then it plunged straight down. And there were reports from individuals who were informed enough to say if any plane that goes down like that has lost its tail, the tail has been blown off. And so there were all of these completely unsubstantiated and incorrect rumors that there had been a bomb placed in the the tail of the plane. Well, the luggage compartment is in the tail of the plane, and 
Kennedy's sister-in-law's briefcase washed up on the shore, and it's completely intact, right? There was not a scratch on it. Mm. That there was no bomb in that plane. There's certainly no bomb in the luggage compartment of that plane. Um, so what happened? So therefore, it had to have been a suicide. I, yeah, I mean, that's what I would say. That the logical conclusion is that it was a suicide, uh, and I'm not beyond um, the suggestion that. Kennedy killed himself. I mean, it's it's plausible, and it, you know they could have programmed him to kill himself. Mm. Um, however, um, the, there's a couple of screaming red lights, and one of them is that I, I talked to the head of the uh, the guy whose name was on the report, and he told me that Kennedy had a very advanced avionic system on the plane, such that when he contacted the tower, they would have given him a, a discrete, that is a unique code that he would have typed into his system that would have then sent out regularly a message to the FAA that identified his plane, identified the location, identified the altitude, and if that plane had descended be under 200 feet anywhere but the tarmac of the airport that was also encoded in that message, it would have set off an alarm at the FAA headquarters. In this news report, the right the that I the tape of the news report, they have this guy come on who identifies himself as Todd Bergun. And if you Google Todd Bergun, you can find him making reports in the months earlier. He was the spokesman for the Coast Guard, and he says that Kennedy radioed the tower at let's say 950 and that he was 12 miles off the coast at uh, 2,500 feet. 23, what well, doesn't matter, and, and I haven't seen this in some time, and those numbers are close, but not necessarily on the dot. Well, FAA regulations say that you can't, you have to hold at 2,500 feet and contact the tower before making final approach. So Kennedy had descended to about 2,200 feet, and he then went back up to 2,500 feet and contacted the tower, and when he signed off, the moment he signed off, the plane dived straight down. I talked to Kennedy's flight instructor, his first and longest flight instructor, and I went over the, the, the NTSB report goes second by second through the last moments of the plane. And he said, oh, yes, I'm very familiar with this. John was doing it. It's his favorite approach to the Martha's Vineyard Airport. His mother had a home on Martha's Vineyard, and he, was, he liked to line himself up with the coast so that he could fly over his mother's house and wave to people if they were outside on his way into the airport, and that's what John was clearly doing. So, when the plane hit the ocean, Kennedy also had another system on the plane that would have sent out a signal. I talked to the head of the Coast Guard in the state of California, irresponsible, right, guy that I met in a bar. No, I called him at his work on the phone, and he told me that this system will locate to within three feet the location of the crash. 20 hours later, the Pentagon takes over the reportage. They don't know anything about Todd Bergun, the guy who made the report. They don't know anything about Kennedy contacting the tower. In fact, they're willing to state definitively that Kennedy did not contact the tower, any of the towers along his route. 100% of Kennedy's flight instructors would respond to that by saying that's absolutely outrageous. There's Kennedy was the most, all of them put in writing, that he was the most meticulous and safety conscious individual. And there's no more fundamental 
safety procedure than contacting the tower on your route along the way so that if there's a storm blowing in, which happens in the Northeast, they can tell you, uh, turn around and go back and land as fast as you can because this thing is coming. If a, if suppose a 707 is having engine trouble and has to turn around and it's coming your way and they're in distress. They're not worried about you. They got 400 people on board. You better get, well, if you're in contact with the tower, they can give you that sort of instruction. So the, the notion that Kennedy would not have contacted the tower is absolutely outrageous. And I found the first thing that got me going, I think, was an article I found in the Boston Globe. And I'm telling you, Boston people are different than Boston in Boston Coast Guard is different in their attitude towards the Kennedy Kennedys than any other Coast Guard. And they printed, there were these two reporters who were angry, talking about how um, they, the Kennedy family contacted the Boston Coast Guard because they had been contacting the FAA and they couldn't get the FAA to act. And they contacted the, the Boston Coast Guard and the Boston Coast Guard unfortunately for them, contacted the FAA, and the FAA told them, uh, yeah, go, go to Long Island. We, we, yeah, we have, a, we have a signal coming from Long Island. Uh, no craft went to the crash site, which I'm telling you was known immediately. Um, in fact, it was known beforehand. When, when it, the plane descended below 200 feet, the FAA got, had one alarm going off. When it hit the water, they had another alarm going off. According to Bergun, the message that Kennedy gave the tower was that he was on final approach. When you are on final approach, FAA regulations say that if you don't land within two minutes, they have to start a search for you right. they didn't start a search of the crash area for 15 and a half hours wow you have the kennedy family this is noon at three o'clock in the morning the kennedy family including senator ted kennedy is trying to get the faa and the air force to begin a search and they got the they got the boston coast guard to do it but unfortunately the boston coast guard took their orders from the air force as they're supposed to and you know were directed 200 miles away from the the very very well known by several different methods including kennedy's contact with the tower a uh, crash site mm. and uh, like i'm telling you it at 12 o'clock in the afternoon the pentagon has taken over news coverage and is saying that they don't know where the plane crashed. And the the and this woman from People magazine, it's it's, it's people should get the video. It's called the assassination of JFK Jr. This woman from from People magazine says, um, excuse me, but what about the report that Kennedy contacted the tower saying that he was it goes to snow. <laughs> They, they right. just killed the mics. But you get to hear the question. And, you know, there's something else for your audience to understand. Reporters file really important stories, but you don't see them. They file really important facts in stories. But if it's 
unless you unless the this is a detail that is so obscure that only buddy with only someone with a vast background will understand the significance of this detail if it's an obviously important detail you're not going to see it yeah. despite the fact that the reporter filed it so um you know people have a tendency to talk bad about reporters i'm not one of those people and especially um in the case of john kennedy jr there's just there there was a lot of really really good stuff so why did they kill him that's the question. Yes, I think we've established, I hope we've established they killed Kennedy because Kennedy was planning to make peace in Vietnam and he had a special envoy in the air going to meet with Castro. He was going to make peace with Castro as well. Um, the guy's name was Atwood. That's in JFK and the Unspeakable. Um, I would recommend JFK and the Unspeakable, except it took me six months to read it, and I'm I'm st- <laughs> I'm reading it for the fifth time, and you know every <laughs> every time through you find something really really crucial. So get it, but understand that if you're serious about it, you're you are stuck. <laughs> anyway, um, why did they kill him? And he had written an important article blaming the Mossad. He didn't write it. He published an article written by the mother of the guy who is in prison in Israel for killing Yitzhak Rabin. And she says this was a Mossad operation. And there's an enormous amount of circumstantial evidence to support that, including the autopsy, which shows that the bullet was fired while he was in the back of the car not uh, fired outside the car by the guy that they, who was just as likely firing blanks for all we know, um, the guy that they arrested and put in prison for it. Maybe they did it for that reason. Um, I expect that that contributed to it. It's my guess that they were planning 9-11 and they had to, and if John Kennedy is gonna publish an article like that, he's not a reliable individual. Um, I would guess in my imagination that they went to a number of other editors who they suspected of not being perhaps utterly persuaded and said, watch what happens to John Kennedy Jr. this weekend. Mm. And when when we tell you something, you better know that you better take it seriously. We're not screwing around. And and. You remember the story about making your bone? Yeah. George W. Bush was running for president. He was behind in the polls. New Hampshire was two, three months away, and he's behind in the polls, and he disappeared that weekend. And the press ran to his campaign, and they, you know, the editor said, here's the angle. Ask Bush is the only living, now Bush is the only living son of a president. What does he think of the death of what used to be the only other living son of a president, and they confront Karen Hughes, and Karen Hughes says, humana, 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 uh, he's not here. Where is he? Humana, uh, I don't know. Uh, when's he gonna be back? I don't know. And uh, that night he was spotted at the Bohemian Grove partying, but like his father, well, I'll tell you what, the, the, the Sacramento Bee published an article saying Bush was partying at the Bohemian Grove that night, and Karen Hughes called up the reporter who I spoke to, and the reporter told me that Karen Hughes had retracted it, and the reporter said, we have a witness. And Karen Hughes says, we'll sue you, and, and, and the reporter said, we have a witness, sue away, tell me where he was, and we'll retract it. Click, and, 
End of conversation. Uh, okay. So, we'll wrap it up. You know the shooting in Charleston? Yeah. Well, Jeb Bush was supposed to win the nomination. You understand that, right? Jeb Bush had raised $120 million. Nobody else had raised more than a couple of million. Mm. He had raised 100 times more than anybody else at that point. He was clearly the choice of the banker fascists at that point. Mm. You will not easily find this story. He was scheduled to speak at the Maritime Center in Charleston at 9 o'clock in the morning. You won't find anybody who knows that. I mean, I wrote letters to the, the political beat reporters at the various Charleston newspapers saying, did you know this? And um, none of them responded that they did. In any, and I didn't tell them why I was asking, but you can find there you, you have to dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. Uh, some, you know, some joker who was uh, tweeted about it. Um, and you can find pictures that the guys who did the preparations for the speech took of the, you know, the chairs and the, the you know, the red, white, and blue bunting that they had put up all over the place. Yeah. Um, well, if Bush is supposed to speak at nine o'clock in the morning, he has to get there the night before, right? And if you look at the closest five-star hotel to the Maritime Center, in fact, if you look at the four closest four-star hotels to the Maritime Center, they're all two blocks from the Charleston murders. Right. And the guy who committed the Charleston murders had more black friends on Facebook than he had white friends on Facebook. Now, I haven't done the video on this one, but my argument is this. My position is this. George Herbert Walker Bush had so much blood on his hands, he had so much powder burns on his fingers that he got called into the FBI headquarters for questioning the next day. He was the son of a prince, and he got called into FBI headquarters the next day. He was making his bone. He had to do it because that's how these guys work. He was making his bone. The reason now George W. Bush is completely incompetent, but oh, and I left out a major part. Kennedy didn't kill himself. There was a flight instructor on the plane. And the reason that you know that there was a flight instructor on the plane, uh, two reasons. One is that Kennedy never flew without a flight instructor. And he had six that reasons I won't go into all of them. Very, very, very solid why he would have had a flight instructor. You're just compelling. He was working on his instrument license and to, to qualify, he had to log hours flying with a flight instructor. That's one. And then they're, they're all of them that good. They, the news, when the Pentagon took over the reporting, immediately the news, which had previously, I, I heard early Sunday, Saturday morning, I heard that there was a flight instructor on the plane based on the phone call that the family made to the Boston uh, Coast Guard. The Boston Coast Guard alerted their friends in the media and the story went out that Kennedy's plane was missing and it included the information that there was probably a, a flight instructor on the plane. At noon, the word went out that there was no flight instructor on the plane. Based upon what? Nothing. There's absolutely, there was no evidence at that point. Nobody saw the plane take off. Kennedy had always flown with a flight instructor. This was a new plane. It was, you know, right, it was a very, very powerful, had these complex avionics. He needed to, you know, he needed somebody who knew the plane to teach him how to fly the plane. He, 
he was on crutches because he had fly he had crashed this tiny plane and his wife got on a plane with a guy who's on crutches because he broke his foot crashing a little plane you think his wife got on a plane without a flight instructor on that plane you've never <laughs> been married if you think so there's there's no flipping way not the smallest chance in hell that she would have gotten on a plane with a guy who was also already demonstrated his ability to crash if there hadn't been a qualified flight instructor the flight instructor had been programmed says me um we don't know who he is there is one flight instructor who was who is missing from the the ndsb contacted every flight instructor that kennedy ever had except uh, a guy whose name i should probably not mention because i don't remember exactly and it's in the video good gravy this guy is clearly I, I hired a, a private detective and paid her $500 to find Todd Bergun and to find this flight instructor, and both of them have disappeared from the face of the earth. She told me the record for the flight instructor was the craziest thing she had ever seen. There was this record and that record and nothing. She said it was like finding two footprints in the middle of a beach. No footprints leading up to it and no footprints leading away. She'd never seen anything like it. He, what he... Whatever this guy's name was, um, uh, he was a false identity that the CIA, cre you know, the CIA creates false identities, yeah. right? You're our operative. We want to send you to, to so and such and such a place, but you can't go as, you know, Joe Blow, the CIA agent. So they hand you a passport with somebody's name on it. Well, this isn't, you know, there, there may be school yearbooks that, you know, have this guy's name and picture that looks sort of like you or that may have been changed to look like you and you know they've created a false background birth records and whatnot you know if you're supposed to go fly to moscow and, and infiltrate the uh some critical operation the the kgb is going to be looking you up well they have false identities that when the kgb looks you up they find what they're supposed to find if you are who you say you are yeah so they you know they have these empty slots well this guy was an empty slot and that that's my story, which accounts for why they spent 15 and a half hours. They stuck a thumb in the eye of the Kennedy family. F you Kennedys. We don't give a crap that the senator has. This, Kennedy called Clinton at six o'clock in the morning and screamed at him that the FAA would not put a plane in the air to search for John Kennedy's plane. And Clinton called up his chief of staff Podesta and tell the and said tell the people at the Air Force they're all fired if they don't get twenty planes in the, the air immediately. So the, they put twenty planes in the air searching Long Island. Right? None of them in the crash area. Um, and my position is that George W was making his bone and my position is that they were counting on Jeb to win the election, but me and a lot of other good people have done enough work that Jeb Bush couldn't get 3% of the vote. If it, this um, friend of mine called me up and he said, you'll never guess who won the Kennedy Medals, uh, Profiles and Courage Award this year, Freedom Award. And I said, no, I won't. Who? And he said, George H.W. Bush. I said, no way. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he said, Google it. And I did. And... You know, you, you do a Google search, 18, right, you get 18 uh, things. The first eight 
were about Bush being involved in the Kennedy assassination. Number nine was about him getting the Medal of Freedom Award. And number 13 was about him getting the Medal of Freedom Award. And all of the rest were about his involvement in the Kennedy assassination. Jeb Bush and, you know, all of the 9-11 truthers, right? I, I think it's, it's very easy if you're a 9-11 truther to become very, very depressed uh, about the situation. We in the 9-11 truth movement are responsible for Jeb Bush, despite the fact that he had a hundred times more in donations than any of his competition, were unable to get the nomination. They had made sure, just by the way, that that all of Jeb's opponents, except for Trump, who hadn't declared, I don't think at that point, were tied to the Charleston shooter. Wow. It goes deep, doesn't it? Um, I guess it does. Well, my my sister was asking me, um, doesn't this depress you? <laughs> and I said, if I if I didn't feel like I had my hands on the answer, I might be depressed. But I feel like I got it. You know, I feel like I got him. And and so I guess this might be the wrap up. Here's here's two for you. Kennedy, there was an article in the Atlantic. Kennedy was receiving like seven or eight injections on a daily basis. He was receiving any number of other very serious medications during the course of a day. Why didn't they poison him? The Secret Service was clearly very, very, very deeply involved. Why didn't they just exchange one of the vials that the doctor was administering an injection from and put a thousand times the dose um, and hand it to the doctor and let him kill Kennedy. And then after Kennedy's dead, you can change, you can put the, the vial back in with the right label on it and say, look, it's the doctor's fault. He didn't read the friggin' label. Or I'll, if he did, I'll, he I'll throw it. a theory at you there, John, if you, if you don't mind. Go ahead. I think the shock and the trauma um, with something like this being broadcast, you know, I, th- I don't think it would have been the same if it was poisoning. I mean, look at it. Well, so so far later and, and it's still reverberating around the world I mean interest is higher than it's ever been in it why is that? Is well, that I think right? there's, there's been a collective trauma and a, the, the psyche of the western world certainly was affected by the death of John F. Kennedy which makes it all the more ridiculous that uh, that, that Bush the senior had no idea where he was on that day or pretended not to you know sure well if he died of, of poisoning it, I listen the principal didn't come to the door with tears in her eyes and say Kennedy was shot from the front and had a giant exit wound in the back of his head and, and so on and so on. Yeah. She said that he'd been killed. That was the impact. That was the trauma was his death. It, but, you know, I'm not in a hurry, but um, I'm inclined to wrap it up and say that because they wanted to send a message to every fu- every future, every future president of the United States that when we threaten you, they, they wanted them to know, right? They wanted, that's why they released the, the Zapruder film that they have released, which shows the president being protected by the, the um, Secret Service. So mm-hmm. it wasn't the Secret Service that did him. You, you're not safe even if you have an honest Secret Service. Well, I don't know that that's the case, but that's not the message of the Zapruder film. Even if you have an honest Secret Service, the CIA will kill you if they want. And it doesn't matter how ridiculous the evidence is that there was a shot from the front. Every history book and every newspaper and you know, on the 50-year anniversary, there wasn't one that I saw 
commemoration that acknowledged anything remotely resembling the truth and the Kennedy assassination, and they want to send that message to the president. But why did they, why did they shoot him in Texas? And, and why didn't they poison him? And, you know, they could have, they could have laid the, the groundwork for telling every future president, look, we poisoned him and we'll poison your ass too. You know, here's the documentation that, that we poisoned him and we'll poison your ass too if you uh, don't fall in line. And, my, and why did they release a Zapruder film in 1966 that showed clearly that the Warren Commission was a fraud? And why did Life magazine of all sources publish a, a front page article showing that the Warren Commission was a fraud and all praise and glory and heartfelt thanks to Mark Lane. But Mark Lane was, you know, he had a number with New York Times number one bestseller. His, his information was not suppressed. And I'm going to answer that question for you and, and we'll go anywhere you want from there and including on our separate ways. But mm -hmm. they were setting up Lyndon Johnson they wanted Lyndon Johnson to take the fall in 1966. I blamed Lyndon Johnson in 1970. I blamed Lyndon Johnson, and I dropped out of out of electoral politics. Right? If if every right if the Democrats and the Republicans were involved in the Kennedy assassination, what's the point of voting? And my message to the people in your audience is, the Democrats were not involved in the Kennedy assassination. The Republicans. Um, certainly the heart and soul of the Republican Party is essentially a fascist ideology. The rich deserve to rule. We should get out of the way, stop trying to make them pay taxes, and live on the crumbs that they leave us. That's the heart and soul of the Republican Party, and it's the heart and soul of the fascist, of fascist ideology. It's the heart and soul of, of Hitler's message. It's the heart and soul of Mussolini's message. And those are the guys who killed Kennedy. And, you know, it, 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 I, I don't know, <laughs> my observation after 50 years of studying this and after many years of hating Democrats um, as well as Republicans is that, oh man, is that liberals, and, and by liberals, it, it, for many years, I've tried to answer the question, what's the difference between a socialist and a communist? And I'm finally, I swear to God, right? I had straight A's in history, and it's all I've ever been interested in. It's what I do for fun. And, you know, I've read a lot of Marx, and I've read a lot of Lenin, and I've read a lot of Stalin. And I, I, yeah. and until recently, I don't think that I could have answered the question, what's the difference between a socialist and a communist? But I think that I can answer that question now. And Communists think that the world should be run like a European community. That's where the word comes from, because the European communities, which were called communes, yeah. in, a, in a community, the richest guy in town is not the most important guy in town, and the needs of everyone else are not subservient to the needs and desires of the richest guy in town. The needs of everyone are important, and everyone in the community, you know, if a guy dies, the community takes care of his wife and kid. If a kid's having trouble in school, the community steps in and tries to help him out. And you see that, you know, in, in, 
in Sweden and a number of other countries that if, if a kid is going down a criminal path, they don't grab them and throw them in prison for, you know, have them sentenced to life. They grab them and they try to school them and they try to get him a job and they, they try to they treat him as if he were a member of the family. And that's what a community does, right? They treat everybody. The, the, the human race is a family. And, you know, any, any organization that is set up to do good, the Catholic Church, for example, is liable to be full of really, really terrible individuals who may end up into positions of power. So it's possible to point at, at communist leaders and, and point out failings of this and that and the, the other thing and to point out communists anyplace and point out bad things of this and that. But I think that the communists have done a terrible job in explaining what I just said. Mm. And I think that most human beings think that our society should be a community and that we should all care about each other and that we should all do what we can to help everybody be successful. And I don't want the government to run businesses. That's not what I want because, I listen, I taught for the public schools for 30 years and I know that bureaucracies suck, Yeah, you know, to, to say the very least. They suck hugely, but the fascists think that the rich are supposed to run the world and that we are supposed to be happy cleaning their toilets and washing their cars and cutting their grass and babysitting their kids and get out of the goddamn way and not bother to vote and not try to involve ourselves in politics and not think that because you're a human being, you deserve a decent life, that you deserve health insurance. Yeah, this this is a point that Europeans understand, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that, sure. That, that people deserve health insurance, but Americans are so you know they've been subjected to the kind of education that you've been subjected to on the issue of what a human being is entitled to because they're a human being. And anyway, and so the liberals. So that this is what the communists think, and the communists are willing to fight about it. Right. The communists are willing to, you know, y you kill my mama and my brother and my candidate for president and, and all the members of my party. I'm going to pick up a gun and come looking for you and organize a, an army and you, you we're going to kill you to the last man. The socialists say, let's sit down and make a deal that's good for everybody. In fact, let's sit down and make a deal that is a short term benefit for the fascists but a long-term benefit for everybody else. So that we will grant them this concession for the next 10 years, but after that, we're coming after you. So that, you know, for example, right, in, in, in Ireland, the Irish government took possession of the British aristocracy's land, mm -hmm. right? I was in, I was in Boyle. Yep. And I went to the aristocrats' house, which they burned down. And, of course, the butler did it. Yeah, right. <laughs> sure, I believe. And, and as you walk, they had friggin' dungeons. Mm. The, the, the British aristocracy in Boyle had done, I mean... They oh, John, right you, you see the... examples of that all over the country, in hamlets, villages, small areas, out in the middle of the country, all over the place. Well, so the socialists want to make a deal that, yes, we're not taking your house from you this year, mm. but in 10 years, we're taking it, or 20 years, we're taking it, or 50 years, we're taking it. But, you know, whatever the deal is, we're taking it. So the, the, and the communists, 
are, you know, are they wrongly pissed that the socialists are making deals with the fascists? Um, well, if you've been through the Vietnam War, and you know, I'm, I'm reading all of this, these communications between the North Vietnamese and the French ambassador who is supposed to then go and relay this information to the South Vietnamese so that they can make a deal because the South Vietnamese don't want to be taken over by the American military. That's yeah. not what they wanted, which is why they had to be eliminated. But the 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 North Vietnamese prime minister says, and this is in quotes from the French ambassador, we are realists and we will agree to anything including keeping Diem as the head of South Vietnam and keeping the country separate as long as it includes the Americans leaving. Right. Which is, which is what the South Vietnamese wanted, the Americans leaving. Yeah. And so, you know, there were, there were a million, oh, every time I see it, I see a higher number. <laughs> Jesus, I was reading this book, the back of the book, lamenting the tragedy of 58,000 Americans lost in Vietnam. Well, and a million Vietnamese and at least a million Cambodians and Laotians that were bombed in Nixon's bombing, that were killed in Nixon's bombing. So when the socialists make a deal and say, yes, we will we'll let you have, you, you can control the government for the next 50 years and you can have the country separated for the next 50 years and we will avoid the loss of two to three million lives and you know, we're going to trade. We're going to carry on trade. And you want to have businesses and you want to have private enterprise? Well, you know, in my experience, private enterprise is not the worst thing in the world as long as you don't allow people to accumulate 10 billion times more than... You can't have billionaires in a democracy. That's my observation. Mm. You can't have billionaires in a democracy. And when Eisenhower was president, do you know what the top income tax rate was? I have no idea. And you will never in a million years guess. 97%. <laughs> what? How is that even possible? Look it up. 97%. I'll tell you how it's possible. There was a revolution in Russia. And Roosevelt, who was certainly a socialist, Roosevelt, who said, and you, you know, find it in a quotes in a million different places, in all of the little the intersections mm. throughout his life thought that the purpose of government was to help the American people, right? The business of, of government isn't business. The business of government is helping the American people. Yeah. That's the business of government. And that's what John Kennedy believed, and he died for it. Anyway, yeah, 97% because Roosevelt was the socialist who promised these guys, look, we'll keep the communists from taking power. There won't be a, social, a socialist or a communist revolution in this country where you lose everything. We are asking men to join the army and go leave their wife and kids and go off and fight and die. You're paying 97%, 97% as a, at the top tax rate. And if you avoid the draft, you avoid the draft, whatever. We're not going to sweat that. But you, when those guys come back from the war, they're going to have right benefits they're going to have gi bill and and it's going to be real they're going to have housing and they're going to have health care and and so on and that's a real difference from the real difference from the fascists mm, sure and by the way by the way george washington was a fascist the jesus the way that george washington treated his troops is 
absolutely the most disgusting thing you can possibly imagine. And it's right up there with the 97% in terms of its unbelievableness. Mm. But, you know, it's, it, that's on my list for a video. But, it, you know, if you research it, it's, it's not that hard to find. The reason for the American Revolution was because the King of England was threatening and planning to end slavery and was complaining that the, you, that the George Washington and his boys were breaking the treaties that the king had signed with the Native Americans. The king said, the Native Americans are my subjects. You don't get to slaughter them and steal their land. If I let you do that, you know, I don't allow one group of subjects to commit such horrendous crimes against another group of my subjects. That's not what the king does. Yeah. He, the, the, that's in writing. And, you know, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington looked at that and said, oh, no, dude, we, we have to have a revolution. We have to separate ourselves from these guys and we have to do it now. And so let's dredge up, right, the Boston Massacre. Let's dredge up the Boston Massacre, which is old news, and, and start beating people over the head with it like that picture of the burning monk in South Vietnam, right? We're going to put it on the, in the headline, even though it's seven years old. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and recruit some really talented and gifted and good propagandists like Thomas Paine, right, mm -hmm. to, to print our fairy tale of what it is you poor saps are fighting for. God damn, the soldiers did not pay taxes under the king. The farmers did not pay taxes under the king on their land. When they got home from the war, they found that Washington had instituted taxes on their land that they hadn't worked the whole time they were off fighting in the war, so they were enormously in debt, and just vast numbers of them lost their farms to the bankers. Hamilton, led by Hamilton, who manipulated Washington so that the bankers could play, you know, right, you, you bet, you know what I mean, if you know how this... The, if you're a banker and you control the government, you place your bets on how you know the government is going to go, and then, then you make sure that the government goes that way. Anyway, anyway, times are not so bleak compared to the to times when, when Washington was president. Times are not so bleak. Abraham Lincoln ended slavery for the bankers. The reason that guy was able to become elected president, and that's nothing against Lincoln, but the reason that he was able to be elected president was because he had the banking of the bankers. And the bankers didn't want, they didn't give a damn about black people. They didn't give a damn about white people. But they were tired of having to kowtow to the slave owners who had dominated the U.S. government and would pass laws that were bad for the bankers and good for the uh, good for the slave owners, and they were sick of it. And they, in Lincoln, they saw their opportunity. Mm. And as usual, got exactly what they wanted. <laughs> now, in this case, I would argue it's a good thing to abolish slavery, but you know the point I'm making. Um, geez, you know, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you, John, actually. Um, seeing as we got really deep into things... Um, do you know anything or have you heard anything about links between Barbara Bush and Alistair Crowley? This rumour keeps popping up all over the place and there was one listener who actually uh, sent an email wondering about this as well. And I know nothing about it, but rumours that perhaps Barbara Bush was the daughter of Alistair Crowley. Oh, I don't know. 
But who knows? I, I don't. I don't know anything about it. You don't know. No, that was a specific it, question for you, though. Yeah, nothing would surprise me. Nothing right? would surprise the, me either. At, I must admit. At, at the end of my JFK Jr. video, I show the ruling elite sitting around a table eating a baby. And, you know, there are people who allege such things, and that makes sense to me, right? How, how can you know that somebody is not going to break the silence on their deathbed because, and you were talking about this, because you have, you don't have a murder on them. Mm. You have, you have something that is so outrageous and so disgusting that they, they cannot have this released to the public. Now, you know, I, I'm not interested in spending any time talking about it um, or trying to put the case together, but these guys are the most evil people in the history of the world. They are the, you, you can document that these are the guys who made Adolf Hitler. Hitler was not anti-Semitic. They recruited him and taught him that stuff, and that's documented. And they did it so that they could kill all the Jews and keep their bank accounts. And they, they discovered that because, I don't know whether they did it on purpose or accidentally, but they did the same thing to the Armenians. The New York Life sent their agents into the Armenian neighborhoods in Turkey and persuaded people they should deposit their money, their life savings with New York Life because then it would be safe from the Sultan who might seize their bank accounts if they had it in Turkish banks. And so they got all of the money of the Armenians and then they went to the Sultan and said, if you kill all the Armenians, you'll get all their money. Yeah. That's documented. The, the, the Turkish ambassador protested to the American ambassador saying that the American banks have all of this money that belongs to the Armenians and they're supposed to forfeit it to the Turkish government. And the American ambassador wrote about it. He was just scandalized that, that they could suggest such a thing. But he wrote about it with the intent to suggest that the reason that the Turkish government exterminated so many Ameri Armenians and exterminated them by the family, right, a genocide. The, the advantage of a genocide is particularly won by the bankers, right? I mean, if, you, right, if you're terrorizing a population. I was, I was listening to National Public Radio this morning and they're talking about what Burma did to the Muslim minority in Burma. Mm. And they terrorized them, right? Rape and, and, and beatings and a few murders. And they tried to drive them out of the country, but they weren't interested in exterminating them because, you know, by and large, what the hell, what's the point? Um, and in addition to which, geez, in, in Germany, you have gen generals, German generals complaining that he, they don't want their soldiers participating in the Holocaust because it's bad for morale. Wow. Yeah, which it obviously is, right? I mean, you, you're a soldier because you're brave and dedicated to all of these noble ideals, and now you're out slaughtering women and children. Wait a minute. You know, how's, how is that not going to weigh on you? Anyway. It's oh. mind-boggling what goes on and what has gone on and what continues to go on as the wheels continue to turn behind the scenes. So much of it driven, of course, by a military-industrial complex and the banking system. I've spoken for nearly three hours. I could oh. feel we could talk for another 33 hours. Easily. Um, because there's just so much information and I hope you will come back. 
I've been just stunned by some of the information you've delivered and how there's so much information. For anybody who would like to delve even deeper, give us the links to your websites, how they can check out the films, etc., etc. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm really sort of... What I want to do is make 50 films and put them all up at therealhistorychannel.com. And my website at the moment is therealhistorychannel.com. That's my goal is to to put out, you know, like the History Channel, only not bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Oh, gee, what a concept. <laughs> you know, I'm studying this stuff, only I'm not studying a bunch of garbage, right? Memorizing, na- memorizing names and dates, and it's... It's certainly the big picture that I'm being delivered is all hardcore lies. Anyway, um, the realhistorychannel.com is what I'm trying to get off the ground. Dark Legacy is the video on JFK Sr. You can find it around the web. You can buy it at my website if you like. You can buy it at, I think you can buy it at Amazon. Um, but it, the earliest version of it was called JFK to the Bush Connection. And, you know, what's interesting is every version of these I've ever put up has been taken down. But fortunately, what a many, 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 many other people have put them back up. So I, I don't even worry about that stuff anymore. Yeah. The, the, the movie on JFK Jr. is um, G- The Assassination of JFK Jr. Um, I just did a video on the Orlando shooting called Understanding Terror. Um but if you go, I have a YouTube channel, the Real History Channel. If you go to YouTube and Google the Real History Channel, um, my latest stuff is up there. But, you know, you haven't wasted your time listening today because most of what I spoke about today is not up there. Well, we'll get the links up as well so people can find as much as they possibly want. I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. John Hankey, it's been an incredible couple of hours chatting to you and I really hope we can do it again. Thank you so much. Uh, and I could give my email address if if you go if you go to the Real History Channel, it, my email address is at the beginning and the end of every video. It's xjhanky at gmail. And you know if you're a serious researcher or, or serious about anything, you're I'll take thirty seconds out of my day to to share a few words with you. Um, and I thank you very much, and I thank you for what you're doing. And you know it's it's a group effort, isn't it? We do oh. it because the right thing to do. You and I are, but um, see, I think the bad guys have figured out. That, you know, my videos were on YouTube for years and years and years and years and years. That's the only place you could get them. And they had millions and millions and millions of hits. They have figured that stuff out. Yeah. And I think that there's an enormous amount of fake news out there at the moment. Um, God, and it's just, it's just so disturbing that, I, I mean, do you, you ever watch Stephen Colbert? No. But you've heard of him. I've heard of him, yeah. Right, there's Stephen Colbert and there's The Daily Show and and um, Jimmy Kimmel and, yeah. and Seth Meyers and all of these guys are just, uh, it tickles me to death when they stomp the hell out of Trump because I think that Trump is, does, didn't mean anything that he ever said about doing anything for anybody but his fellow billionaires. I think mm. everything, he, and he suckered people in, they believed him and, and I, I understand their desperation to believe that there was a solution besides going to war and so they... <laughs> but but the stuff I'm going to say this Hillary Clinton had a, a, an interview the other day where she said that she supported the rocket attacks against Syria and she supported a no-fly zone in Syria and that's terrible I mean that's absolutely monstrous but 
everything else negative that I ever saw about Hillary Clinton was just a lie from start to finish. There was a thing called Clinton Cash that that attacked the Clinton Foundation, and it was just a lie from start to finish. It started off attacking the Clinton's association with Paul Kagame in um, Rwanda. And, you know, my daughter who graduated from Harvard last year, she and I worked together doing research on Rwanda. I know a lot about Rwanda. Paul Kagame is one of the, the real heroes of modern history. Just, you know, he's a Malcolm X Mm. Right. Who ended up in charge of the country. He's a Malcolm X who didn't get murdered by the CIA, but who was smart enough to avoid getting murdered and ended up in charge of the country. And the Clinton Cash makes out that he's a bad guy and Clinton's a bad guy for associating him. And I could go on for three hours about this. Um, and it's it's such and, and the Pizzagate garbage, for example, and, and on and on and on. Any particular story that I ever investigated, it turns out Hillary Clinton's a socialist. Her heart's in the right place. She wants to do good for people. This She defended some guy who got accused of rape. I don't know if you ever saw that story. No, I didn't see that one. When when she was fresh out of law school, she defended some guy who, who got a, was accused of rape. And so there was all this garbage about what a terrible person for her to defend this rapist. And it's, I studied that story down to the nth degree. And I was, I, I never liked Hillary Clinton very much. I mean, she put on a Yankees cap. It, it turned my stomach. I swear to God, I was physically ill that she could be such a blatant and disgusting panderer and treat people like such morons <laughs> that, that she would put on a Yankees cap to get New Yorkers to vote for her. When, you know, she sat at the state of the union, she was sitting next to Sammy Soso, who I think is a Chicago cub. If I, if I got the names right, it, and, and it doesn't matter. Just so she has personally has zero appeal to me, but the fake news that they put out against her, and a lot of it came, oh fuck, the, these Russian trolls. You know the guy. You know the guy who uh, says that that Putin has a a tape of Trump pissing, or the the whores yeah. pissing on Matt. Yeah, I heard that one. Yeah. Do you, do you know who hired that guy first? No. Jeb. Bush. That was the BBC reported that, and then they killed the story and said, "Oops, we made a mistake. Really, you made a mistake. You meant to say Ned Bush, or you meant to say Ned Tush, or wh- what part of?" <laughs> yeah, they said no. They said the reporter misspoke. <laughs> Wait a minute. You know how 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 do you misspeak and say the first person to hire this guy was Jeb Bush? Jeb Bush. Oh Jesus Christ! The the shooter in Orlando who I'm telling you, the, the evidence, I said Orlando Charleston. Mm. Both of those were operations, right? Both the Orlando shooting and the Charleston shooting are operations. It's the Charleston shooting that Jeb Bush was involved in. That guy's, you have video of two of his best friends are black talking about how, what do you mean the guy was racist? And and one of them was a good friend of the guy in school and said, they're that if he had a million dollars, he would bet all of it right now that the crap on the website that this guy supposedly posted, he, there's no way that he wrote it. He was virtually illiterate. Says this guy who went to school with him and, uh, and was his best friend and ought to have known. Um, the guy had a website with 28 professionally taken pictures and it was based out of Russia. 
Okay. Yeah. Jeb Bush is Jeb Bush is the guy who has criminal ties to the Russians. The the Trump people are all going to prison. Their ties to the Russians are not criminal, and they're not going to go to jail for having criminal ties to the Russians. They're going to go to jail for having honest and decent and positive ties to the Russians, trying to make peace, but lying about it. Hmm. That's what they're going to go to jail for is lying about it. But so you know, don't get me wrong. I I think that that Trump's well, that Trump's ties to Russia are have a very very positive aspect. I'm scared to death that the reason he wanted to, to get cozy with the Russians was to talk them into abandoning Iran so that he could bomb the crap out of Iran. That that I think that's what he's got going on in his head. But never mind. Um, I thank you so much for having me on. It's very, very important that people uh, be involved. And, and, you know, if, if you had me on, you're, you're a right guy doing, doing, giving people some empowering, I, I think some material that really empowers people. I mean, that's my goal. I don't know what to tell you to do, but I do think that I have information that allows you to make better judgments than you could possibly make. It allows you to make genuinely informed judgments about what's going on and, and what your approach should be. And it's to your absolute uh, credit that you do so and continue to do it because I'll certainly be following your work and I know lots more people will as a result of the show as well today. So thank you very much for joining me and keep up the great work, John. Likewise. And, and I'm very, very pleased and thrilled that uh, we've opened a door that uh, has so many promising uh, views. Absolutely. And we'll keep that door wide open and continue to kick down doors as time goes on. Terrific. Thanks so awfully much. Super. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate it. Alchemy. 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 I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Alchemy. Remember, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and ad-free format and are very, very grateful for any help you can offer. Indeed, our output is dependent on donations because of bandwidth costs, etc., etc. I won't harp on too much about it. And there is no fixed cost on donations. It all helps. So even if you could spare the price of, I don't know, a bag of crisps, as they're known in Europe, or potato chips in the States every month, it would go a long way towards keeping us afloat. Our donate button is on the website and your support and assistance is very much appreciated, as I said. So until the next time, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Times can a man 